0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
1: Astonishing Legends would like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners.
0: Last week, we introduced you to the strange, astonishing legend of the Kira object, a small craft captured by a group of young boys after school one day. This week, we're going to take you further into the multiple encounters that were had with it and try to ascertain just what it may have actually been. The kids caught the craft on multiple occasions, and even after it would sometimes vanish, they would recapture it again and subject it to rigorous and haphazard experimentation in their bid to figure out just what made it tick. Add to this that it was found in an area thought to be haunted by a kappa, or amphibious yokai demon. Four years later, and just 18 miles away as the crow flies, in a separate incident, a young girl encountered what sounded like a nearly identical craft. Was the Kira object just an old ashtray that these boys fashioned into a tail larger than life? Or was it something more?
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I think a lot of kids are interested
0: in two science subjects, dinosaurs and aliens, and the reason is almost genetic. We're hardwired to be interested in things that might be a little dangerous. Seth Shostak, American
2: astronomer and senior astronomer for the SETI Institute. Join us tonight for part two of our two-part series on the Kira Object. And we're back! Last week, we said it was the 177th time, but it's actually this is episode 177, not counting specials and bonuses. You're right about that.
0: I I can't imagine how we would let that slip. But well, you know, I count our online presence in the universe here and overall aired minutes in sidereal time. So I have no idea what that number could be. But by many people's tastes, it's been way too much.
2: <laughs> you will be pleased to know, uh, Forrest, I wanted to tell you this too. We got a picture of the Bloomfield tomatoes that seem to be enjoying our show. So I'm posting those on social media this <laughs> oh. week for people who didn't believe that story. In fact, our friend Brendan was hurt that you didn't seem to believe him. <laughs> well, they, and they do sound delicious. But to be fair, Brendan is
0: liable to say anything after several oyster shots. And to be even fairer, So am I. All
2: right, folks. We got a lot to talk about tonight, but before we do, we just wanted to thank Micah Hanks again for his diligent work as a story producer on this series. Micah has been producing podcasts since 2010 after several years working in radio, and his flagship is the Micah Hanks Program, a podcast which focuses on science and the mysteries of our universe. It was formerly known as the Graylian Report, actually. Uh He also hosts the popular current events podcast, Middle Theory, and is co-host of the Seven Ages Audio Journal. That's a podcast devoted to the study of archaeology and ancient history, which is also close to his heart.
0: Yeah, you, you really can't go wrong with any of those shows. And we also want to thank Rob Morphy again for allowing us to make frequent reference to his blog entry on the Kira object that he did for Mysterious Universe. And Rob is a really talented researcher, illustrator, and podcaster himself, and you can listen to him and his longtime buddies, Mark Stores and Chris Carnicelli, over on the Kryptonaut podcast, and they cover a lot of the same things that we do over there, but very differently.
2: Definitely put the kids to bed before you pull that one up, but it's still extremely Uh, entertaining. A little blue, but
0: it's (laughs) it's a lot of fun. It's It's a lot of fun. (laughs) So look for all of those shows wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so now it's time to dive back into the Kira object here, and tonight we wanted to start the show out with an email we got a few days ago that sheds a little extra light on some of the stuff we covered last week.
2: Yeah, the first email for that came in a few days ago, and then just today, we're recording on Tuesday this week—the uh, Tuesday before the show goes up—which is remarkably ahead of time for us. Well, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're
0: going <laughs> to screw up enough that it drags into you know doing it Friday night. Yeah, I just it can does. feel it. You
2: this know. email actually came in a few days ago, and then I communicated with the author of it. A few times that she was very gracious to share this Mm -hmm. information with us. So, uh, Forrest, I'll let you go ahead. Her name is Tuche, and uh, her story is pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, I really love it when we get a response that uh, gives us a little more insight into cultural customs and norms, and uh, that's what this email does here. So, uh, it starts off, My name is Tuche, and I lived and worked in Japan from September 2010 until March 2019. I can speak Japanese fluently and I can also read and write Japanese, however, my skills in reading and writing do not match up to my verbal skills. I just wanted to add some information here about Japan and the Japanese culture to hopefully help out with certain contradictory facts provided in different articles and help you draw your final conclusions. You two talked about schools in Japan and how they finish at 3pm, and this is correct. However, most Japanese students usually stay back for club activities in Japan and go back home later during sunset or even sundown. I don't know what day it was that they saw this object, but maybe it's also good to note that I believe up until 2002, Japanese students attended school Monday to Saturday, so they only had the Sunday off. They still do go to school on Saturdays, but only for club activities. It's also worth noting that a good majority of Japanese people do not like to draw attention to themselves, especially on topics most others may consider, quote, out of the ordinary or even strange. So what I'm trying to say is the more people witnessing this odd object, the more inclined they will all be to come out and talk about it. So I can imagine a group of boys out of school walking past the rice fields, seeing this object and getting more friends involved the next time in the hope of catching another glance at this object. A bit more information on Onibi. Oni in Japanese means demon, and bi or hi, is fire. So it literally translates to fire demon. They have other Onis, like the Onikoma, which is a demon bear. A demon in Japan does not have to be evil, In the Japanese culture and religion, most gods and demons are not all just good or evil, and there are no clear lines between good and evil. A demon, mostly seen as evil, is very capable of performing acts of kindness and even protecting humans in Japanese folklore. But as Scott would say, I digress and and he would probably say that. Yes, again. I would. I say it all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it continues. Rice fields are not so deep by the way, ankle or knee high the most. I googled Kochi rice field in August in Japanese which came up with some rice field art, which is very popular in Japan and the field did not look as wet to me, but I can't tell. And then she shared a lake which we will have in our show notes so it goes on finishing here. Looking forward to your next episode on this. Thanks again for keeping us entertained and informed in these mad times we're living in. All the best. Tucci.
2: Tuche, thank you so much for that letter and that information. It's great to hear from somebody who was there as recently as 2019 and lived there for such a long time, and also has a clear command of both Japanese and English. So thank you for sharing that. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Yeah,
0: no, that was really fantastic. And uh, someone else we counted on for a little bit of insight information is my longtime friend, John, who I've known since my first year of college, and I didn't think to go ask him. he's (laughs) He is uh, also from where I grew up, and he has been teaching English in Asia for decades now, and especially in Japan, probably, I don't know, maybe 20 years now. And, and one, I think I probably just didn't want to bother him, but he's a great resource. He listens to the show. And so I finally reached out with an email, and he responded and made some really insightful comments as well concerning the case, and he, he found that fascinating. And that's going to help us out tonight. We'll draw on that as well. And then one more thing before we get started here. Scott and I were talking about the condition, possibly, of the rice paddy at that time of year, and and we weren't sure, like, would it be really muddy? Would there be, like, an inch of water there still? I believe it was in the translation of one of the Japanese blogs that said at that time that rice harvest had already happened, so that field would have been clear— And the standing water most likely would have been gone.
2: Oh, interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. So as as I said before, I'll bet it was very moist and maybe even a little muddy, but not like with standing water, which according to the boys theory would have affected its flight. But you know what? Maybe because it was operating so erratically, as Michio said, first of all, well, that's another thing I was thinking about. Was this thing broken? Possibly like the Bet sphere. Was it operating correctly? Was it meant to fly around like a bat? Or was it malfunctioning and that's why they were able to sneak up on it, but it still had some function, still try to keep
2: them at bay? Or was that just the way it worked? So last week when we wrapped up, we were talking about the appearance of the artwork on this object and uh, what that might have been or what it might have represented. And also uh, the idea that it might have pointed to some kind of hoax, which we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight and the resemblance of this object to an ashtray, believe it or not, which is, I think, super fascinating. But there's more to that, even that side of the story, than meets the eye. However, we're going to back up a little bit and go into some of the examinations that it underwent while it was in the possession of not only the boys, but in the presence of some of the parents of the boys. There was an initial examination, actually, by Matsuo Fujimoto. The boys had brought the craft to the home of Yasuo Fujimoto. He was one of the boys involved in everything. And his father, Matsuo, had the opportunity to make a cursory examination of it. Now, Mr. Fujimoto, growing concerned about his son and the other boys spending so much time away from home at night while pursuing the object, had requested that if his son's story was true, that he attempt to retrieve it and bring it to him. As he later explained in interviews, including the 1975 Japanese television program, which we mentioned in part one... Even when the boys did retrieve the craft, Fujimoto did not appear to be particularly impressed with the contraption, and he likened its appearance, particularly the dull silver appearance of it, to an ashtray. The elder (laughs) Fujimoto also noted that the craft was, quote, impossible to open, and inside were pieces similar to a radio, end quote. These were visible through some of the perforations or openings in the object. Despite this, Fujimoto and the boys were unable to identify anything resembling a propulsion system on it. Later, Fujimoto would express regret that he had not taken more time to study the object while it was in his possession.
0: Yeah, I just want to make a note here for people that have already jumped to conclusions (laughs) that Fujimoto-san said it was similar to an ashtray. He did not say it was an ashtray. That's correct. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, because people will say, well, there you go. Again, that's building up on the the ashtray Archie debunker argument here. Archie
2: debunker. Nice. I that, actually, that's my yet. friend,
0: John, who wrote that in the email. I <laughs> that's fun. right. So
2: that's I, right. I remember that.
0: <laughs> so I thought I'd mention it here yeah. and give him credit. No, the the idea, though, is people will say, like, well, there you go. He spotted it right away. Well, obviously, Fujimoto-san would know what an ashtray looked like.
2: Yeah. You know why? He was the director of the Center for Science Education in Kochi City at the time of this event. So right. this guy is right. not just a dad that's sitting around reading the paper. <laughs> he actually has a background <laughs> in science. And yeah. he would have known and would have pointed it out. And he said that it was similar. And this will uh, play into a point that I want to be recurring tonight about the constant pointing out that it's similar to an ashtray can lead to more comparisons than maybe it deserved Sure, if it wasn't confirmed as an ashtray. So there's nothing more comical than uh, an ashtray UFO, though. <laughs> <really hilarious. laughs> well, it's, it serves
0: two purposes, if, uh, especially back in the 70s for smokers. But the idea we want to stress here is that at least a few adults saw this thing and none of them actually said, well, there you go. It's just an ashtray. And actually, there's some butts inside no one said that. It's similar to that. And it's also something that when I first read the story and hearing the descriptions of it being hat-like, I pictured it bigger. But it's actually, if you look at that photo that we have on our website there, it's a still I took from that documentary. The object is actually kind of small. So it's eight inches across, but it's really like a a small hat, maybe a ventriloquist dummy would wear. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, it is small. that's yes. what it And also,
2: by the way, just to reiterate, the picture of the young man holding it in the field is from the documentary. It's not an actual picture of the original object. But they did get exactly, the dimensions. Yes. They measured it while they had it. They also right. said it was, uh, I think, 1.6 kilograms, like around three pounds, maybe.
0: Yeah, right around there.
2: Which would yeah. take significant propulsion, by the way, at that time period to, for something like that to fly that, that was uh, that heavy, especially with no... Semblance of a system of propulsion or any kind of planar services that would take advantage of low pressure areas from fluid dynamics. There was none of that. And the other thing about Mr. Fujimoto is, again, he's an adult observer with scientific training, and he was at that point able to partially corroborate his son's story. So I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's noteworthy. Once Fujimoto-san had had an opportunity to examine the object, it was returned to its plastic wrapping, and the boys entrusted their prize to the care of Hiroshi Mori's, which was kept in his backpack. The boys adjourned for the evening, but by the following morning, the object had allegedly vanished from Mori's possession. And I love this detail because it's e t It's stranger things. It's like what do the kids <laughs> yeah. get, what do kids have? They have backpacks, yeah. but just the idea that they're taking this around and everyone's looking at it, it really is a movie just waiting to be written. Of course, maybe it's already has been in Super Eight. But, right. Um, oh,
0: yes. Well, uh, a movie I very much enjoyed. I think we both did. Uh, we love those types of movies. Yes. And I just want to make it clear here because it may have sounded like I was dissing Stranger Things last time. Oh, that someone did. React. Yes. I think Round Daddy on Twitter pointed that out. But yes. I just want to clear. Long time listener
2: and fan <laughs> who we're uh, very appreciative of, actually.
0: I really do like watching it. I very much enjoy it. I'm just very particular about my decades and eras and genres. So yes. 70s or 80s. Look, that's mine, man. Yeah, (laughs) you don't mess with it. It's got to be spot on. And uh, also Westerns and spy movies. Well, we're in the same
2: wheelhouse and all that stuff, I think. Yeah, I I demand verisimilitude. So anyway, please continue. Well, following the craft's mysterious disappearance, the boys decided they were going to continue staking out the rice paddy where the object had appeared and see if they might get another chance to observe it. Well, luck did indeed prevail, and a minimum of six sightings of the object were made in the vicinity of the rice field. And uh, by the way, we have found some maps from different websites that show where that initial sighting was, and it took some work. I want to thank uh, Megan Mm -hmm. Winning, who's a longtime friend of the show, who's actually been on the road with us a few times. Megan, thank you so much for uh, taking a look at the Japanese on those maps. We were able to pinpoint the exact location of the initial sighting, and I have coordinates for that, which we will share in the show notes. uh, some Google Map images. Uh, the, The area looks from satellite, from space right now, pretty much identical to how it looked Before, Mm -hmm. there's definitely been more development, but it's easy, real easy to see compared to, I think it was a 1975 aerial image. It's very easy to line up where things happened. The harder part was translating the titles, but uh, we did get some of that done. They knew where it would be, so they hung around hoping to see it again, and they were able to capture it a second time. But as it had done before, it somehow managed to escape during the night. And when you hear this story told, it's the strange things about it escaping are they're oftentimes putting it like on the floor somewhere. If you look at the documentary footage, it shows the boys Mm -hmm. throwing a ton of rags and cloths or clothes on top of it to try to keep it from getting away. It seems to be able to vanish, not always by physical means. It seems to be able to evacuate itself almost magically from custody. So there's (laughs) there's something strange going on there. But at some point... This is what I love. These kids are, you know, they, they got their thinking caps on. This was likely to have been during the second time that they had the object. One of them marked the exterior of it with an enamel marker so they could identify whether it would be the same one again when they recaptured it, should it manage mm-hmm. to escape.
0: Right. So, And that's another thing John pointed out, either from the English language translation of that 1975 TV doc clip or from one of the Japanese UFO blogs was that someone had described it as having an enamel like surface. Yes. So it was dull silver metallic, but also maybe like a powder coating uh, that you see on some metals here. Uh, There were also foundries nearby the area. And that leads to thinking, look, well, maybe it was a mold or a model of an ashtray or fashioned after something that was discarded in the field that the boys found. So you have to take that into consideration as well. But it definitely had some kind of a finished surface on it that whoever faked this thing or the boys did themselves had to coat this object so it was not like the ashtrays that you would normally find which are more cast iron looking especially the uh, the antique knockoffs or the uh, the real thing from the edo period
2: and later you will hear a confession of someone mm-hmm. who, one of the boys, who claims that he did spray paint it with enamel. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. Yeah. As we touched on in part one, weather conditions around the time of the sightings would take on some significance in this story. And they're important anytime you're looking at a UFO-related investigation. Now, in the context of the Cura narrative, it became apparent to the boys that they never observed it when it was raining. And this caused them to wonder if the object might be affected by water in some way, or if water might be some sort of kryptonite with relation to the object's operational capabilities. Working on this premise, they conceived of a plan for how they might be able to capture it a third time and this time hang on to it. Well, their next opportunity presented itself on the evening of Tuesday, September 19th, whereupon approaching the rice paddy, they found it resting motionless on the ground again. With them on this occasion, the boys had brought along a bucket of water they planned to toss on the small craft if they were able to move close enough to it. Uh, this reminds me of my great-grandfather he used to tell me if you wanted to catch a bird, all you had to do was <laughs> shake a little salt on its tail.
0: Oh, that's an stop. old folk yes. tale. <laughs> yeah, and then he
2: would laugh while I ran around the yard with a salt shaker. They uh, also, that was the true purpose. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. I never did that, actually, but he okay. was trying to get me to. They also kept some well-worn rags handy, which upon finding it grounded, they piled onto it before dumping some of the water... In their bucket onto the object. This is when uh, what I call the object torture begins. <laughs>
0: like, uh, mm, they did, well, they
2: did a lot of experiments, but you know, uh, boys will be boys, as they say. Mm-hmm. They clearly were very interested in what made this thing tick. Well, it didn't, or perhaps it was unable to fly at this point. And when they approached it, they turned it over and began pouring water into the holes and perforations. <laughs> On the bottom as well, if that was the bottom. So nothing up until this point had elicited much of a response from it. But as the brackish water they collected began to seep into the openings, it produced an extremely loud buzzing noise, (laughs) which they likened to the chatter of cicadas on a summer night. Accompanying the ear-ringing buzz being emitted by the object was a glowing which emanated from within. At this point, the group of boys became concerned that the object might attempt to retaliate, and they placed some distance between the glowing craft and themselves, and then began to throw stones at it.
0: <laughs> okay, well, that, that doesn't make sense. I can understand. Here's here's my rationale. If I was a, a teenage boy and you pour water into it, yeah. well, that sounds... A bit much. I certainly, you know, from ruining my own objects as a kid, yeah, know not to pour water into something that might be electronic. However, I could justify that thinking, like, well, look, if this is an extraterrestrial spacecraft, how can water? They should have thought of that. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Put that into design. Water's not going to affect it. Certainly, this is a water planet. So, what are you doing? So, yeah. That shouldn't have affected it. But yeah, the throwing of the rocks, it just seems like, okay, now that's just kids.
2: Yeah, they're now standing in a distance, throwing rocks at it, much the way Bigfoot does when we come into his territory. (laughs) And the object, however, showed no signs of aggression, nor did it leave the ground again. And after waiting for a short time, they retrieved it again. This is the third time that it had come into their possession. And they took it back to Katsuoka Kojima's home. And that's
0: when the most extensive Examination and the most disruptive examination of the object to date occurred while it was at Kojima's home later that evening. So, upon closer examination, the group found that the object had the same enamel marking that one of the boys had put on it when they had it previously. And peering into each of the tiny holes and shining a light into them, the boys were able to observe tightly packed electronic components. Now, this is presumably the same ones which Mr. Fujimoto later said resembled radio parts. There were images that they could see within the device on the inside. And photographs of the craft were apparently taken during this period of the examination. Although some sources would say that the shutter either did not open or that these images were too blurry. And that has a little bit of suspicion air about it. But I would have loved to have known what were those images on the inside. Now the boys also used a hammer to attempt to flake off pieces of the exterior of the object, but they were not successful. However, there are some other accounts that say they weren't using a hammer but a paperweight to hammer on this thing. Although the appearance of the Kanazuchi on other Japanese websites would seem to unambiguously claim it was a hammer. So if you remember earlier, the Kanazuchi refers to a hammer, or also an unsuccessful swimmer. And I see the correlation there is both not swimming well and sinking. Well, more water was poured into this thing at this point, which the boys poured through the perforations what we talked about on the bottom of the craft at the center there. And what this did was make a gurgling noise. And get this, as we described the smallness of this uh, hat, this bell-shaped object here, they poured about three pints of water into it, and it didn't overflow, according to them. It seems like too much water going into that size of an object.
2: Yeah, that is a, it's a lot of water, three pints. But, yeah. you know, given its size, I mean, that sounds about right. If it had nothing else inside of it, you know, if it was just empty or it had
0: electronics who who knows for certain but the gurgling noise is curious i hope they weren't drowning a little space pilot
2: <laughs> that's sad well
0: we're- <laughs> Some people have already jumped to the conclusion that the goo oozing out was maybe like... Some people, uh, remember,
2: Rob Morphy, not naming <laughs> names.
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was a little alien. Well, somebody I think on uh, on our Facebook group also said like, oh, maybe that was the shape or the physical uh, embodiment of an alien. Kind of like René Auberjanois, remember? Was it Deep Space Nine? He was a liquid creature. He, yes. That's what his race was. They, yeah. uh, he could He could hold himself... ...as a physical solid being, but when he wanted to rest, he would uh, take a nap in a jar.
2: Yeah. Well, so now they wanted to open this thing up. They then decided that they were going to see if they could separate the upper portion from the lower dish shaped base of the craft and open the object. They got a length of wire, and they began to put that into the holes and openings around the body of the small craft, but they were unable to find a way to pull the two pieces apart. So one account states that the boys then suspended the wire in midair and they dangled the craft from it, employing its own weight and allowing gravity to naturally attempt to separate the upper and lower portions of the object. Only a small gap was exposed in this way, although there's conflicting accounts as to how this opening appeared, as we're about to discuss. There's another version of this that is related that the, and this is from the Japanese language My X-Files website, which I believe we talked about in part one. And Mm -hmm. this is a slightly different account of how a portion of the object came open. It states that prior to attempting to pry it open and presumably after they poured the water into it, the little craft started to produce the sound of insects. And suddenly the lid on the inner circumference of the collar opened up about 15 degrees in angle. Now, according to researchers we mentioned again in part one, Farish and Titler's 1974 account in Saga, this occurred after the boys attempted to insert a wire into the craft. So uh, this is where, as you said, I would say, cue like an angry insect popping out, be like, <laughs> you know, you leave me alone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In a hurry, this account states the group of boys forcibly tried to close it back with their hands, but even after applying all their strength, the rim remained open.
0: Oh no, now you broke it.
2: Yeah, exactly. And while there did not appear to be any further action by the craft, and the boys had initially feared it might be an attack, which seems to be what they think each time they're poking it with a stick, or some (laughs) other kind of retaliation for the abusive experiments they had begun to embark upon to discern what the object was. So that, by the way, makes it clear that they knew that they were not being nice to this thing, whatever they were doing, if they were, you know, so worried about retaliation. You're trying to get a response.
0: You're trying to get a reaction out of it. So if something doesn't work, you try the next most invasive thing until, of course, it freaks you out and then you are sorry. But uh, they haven't reached that point yet.
2: Well, Farish and Tidler's 1974 account seems to agree with this version of the story. Quote, despite their efforts, it could not be fully closed and a space of about 10 degrees was left. Checking later, they discovered the lid was completely shut and all attempts to reopen it with a screwdriver were fruitless, end quote. Oh, so it was kind of self-sealing in a way. Yeah, and coming back to my hoax thinking cap here, if you've got this compartment that you can't open now with a screwdriver and there's no apparent screws holding it shut, then that means, what do you do? Are you welding it shut? How was it open once before and it's not open later, someone's going to have to take it away and make sure it's secure so that it can't be pried open again. Right. And that's if all the details of this story are accurate. Maybe all of this experimentation stuff is made up out of whole cloth. But if it's not then whoever the hoaxer would be is going to have to continuously be modifying this thing to make it react differently to the various experiments, in my opinion. Just a thought that I had.
0: That line of thinking is if the boys are not in on the hoax, that someone else is doing it to pull a prank on these kids and get in the local paper. Yeah. What you're saying is that, yeah, they they either uh, use some epoxy, try to glue the thing. There's something that's uh, preventing it uh, from fully opening or if the boys are perpetuating this hoax, then they're just making up all these complicated efforts to pry this open and their descriptions thereof.
2: Yeah. Well, along with what the boys had compared to electronics within the craft, at this point in the small separation between the upper and lower portions, they saw a thick, slimy substance, which they were unable to identify. And this is the goo that Rob Morphy was referring to as possibly the remains of an alien. A tiny alien. <laughs> we don't.
0: Well, maybe the alien threw up. I don't yes. know, you know.
2: Or maybe it was goo. Maybe that was its natural state. My <laughs> tiny goo on an exploratory mission to Earth in a tiny hat. Uh,
0: possibly. Or pouring the rainwater. It was kind of like rusty water was in the drain, I believe, right? When they When they first did that.
2: Yeah, brackish water is like leftover rice paddy water, I guess. Runoff water. Yeah. Uh,
0: that apparently didn't do it any good. And now pouring water on it at home, again, you don't really know what's inside or if any of this is real, but maybe the water had some kind of chemical reaction with it and it it liquefied what was in there or just loosened up the goo.
2: Yeah, there's been speculation about it. Some people thought it might be some paper item that got too wet and dissolved, or it might be some kind of glue. There are some accounts that also indicate that small quantities of a cotton-like substance were visible within the craft or might have been produced from the craft through this open portion of the exterior. Further experimentation ensued as the boys now employed a hammer again to strike the exterior of the object. At no time were they able to misshape the metallic exterior of the craft. And this actually seems to be consistent with a description of cast iron or some similar material. And it also brings to mind descriptions made by the likes of Mac Brazel, Jesse Marcel, and the others who were on site and examined some of the metallic debris relating to the Roswell incident several decades earlier.
0: Yeah, there are different types of metals that were described to be found. The one I was uh, talking with Scott about earlier here was the foil that was brought home by Jesse Marcel Sr., And shown to his son, Jesse Marcel Jr., where he could crumple it up. It was like a really thin foil, but then it would unfold itself completely flat and wrinkle free. Yes. That's uh, nowadays what we call memory metals. And we have that technology. But here it's something where, yeah, it's just
2: impervious to any kind of denting. But it seems it will take paint. Well, after their attempts at bludgeoning the mysterious object with a hammer produced no discernible results, the boys shifted their approach from impact to temperature and planned to heat it up in the oven <laughs> <laughs> okay, however you 're
0: asking for trouble
2: yeah however kojima 's mother Aiko intervened, and uh, they were prevented from being able to submit the little UFO. To this proposed heat treatment. She was like, you're not putting that in my oven. (laughs) According to Farish and Titler, during the time the object was kept in the Mori home, it continued to glow intermittently with a bluish or bluish yellow light. And young Kojima's mother also observed this glow when her son brought it home. She said it glowed like a firefly. So... That's interesting because that's another case where we have an adult corroborating, you know, not just the presence of the object, but that it's actually doing something more than just being a dumb piece of metal.
0: Well, exactly. And my point being is that an adult should be able to see that the outer surface of this thing, if it has not been switched out by the kids, is opaque. It's a dull silver enamel, something coating on it, which is not transparent, which would allow for glowing from the inside. That's my point in part one, is that somehow this thing is emanating a glow without having lamps with lenses on them or anything that we know of today that can emit light just naturally from its surface that seems opaque, like it's, it would be like a cast iron bucket suddenly
2: glowing itself. It's a good question. It's, okay, so what's going on? Where is this light coming from? And now, based on these examinations, the boys had come to the tentative conclusion that it was some kind of remote-controlled device, a drone of some kind, but this was well before drones were as ubiquitous as they are now. However, the object's flight capabilities, power source, and other aspects of its behavior seem to fall well outside the range of conventional known technologies, either of the early 70s or really even today. Fearing that it might try to escape again, they asked Aiko Kojima if she would allow them to keep it in her refrigerator. Which uh, she also <laughs> declined, much like the earlier request to use her oven to heat it up. So uh, that's <laughs> those boys,
0: those kids. Well, yeah, there's food in there. She's not going to let this thing that's oozing and buzzing and uh, sounds like angry cicadas and is glowing to be in the fridge with the food. Yeah, exactly.
2: We are Christy and Casey, and when we are not racing our dirt bikes, we listen to
0: astonishing legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, after all this experimentation at home, what's the next thing that kids want to do? You want to show it off. So the following week, Seo and his buddies there decided to bring this strange acquisition, their prize with them, to school for what would have been the most out of this world, literally, show and tell episode in all of history. (laughs) So Seo and Mori decided to keep the object with them and they wrapped it up as they had done before. And of course they piled more rags onto it because that's uh, to their logic going to keep it immobilized. And then the little saucer would be their toy in their possession here because now it could not escape. It's got wet rags on it. Well, let's take a look at one other possibility here, which, uh, I don't know if we have it in our outline, but somebody in our Facebook group said that the holes in the bottom, that pattern there, reminded them of one of Canada's most famous UFO incidents, and that's the Falcon Lake incident. Yes. Yeah, I can kind of picture that. It's the holes. Well, what happened there was Stefan Mitchellak was out prospecting for quartz and minerals he was a Polish immigrant, who spoke several languages, and he was a retired military policeman. And on May 20th, 1967, he had a sighting which left him with burns on his chest as he approached this craft. And he, he reached out and he touched it, and it melted the tips of his glove. But he thought all along, and I think even afterwards, since he saw no indication of aliens, that it was some kind of U.S. secret military craft, and maybe it was having problems. So he went up to it to offer help and that's when this thing started to rotate and exhaust came out of these holes and essentially started his shirt on fire and his undershirt and created burns which were uh like four across seemed to be five rows of that so like maybe 20 dots on his chest that uh, were really bad and uh, uh blistered later and caused him some health problems from then on so yeah i saw some similarities with that and maybe just the pattern in that maybe those holes are for sound or some kind of exhaust or propulsion
2: coming from inside the Kira object. One of my favorite things about our show is, and not knowing whether or not, you know, the story is true or is a hoax or not, is listening to us analyze Really Completely. mundane things about and how they could possibly be UFOs. Like it's like if you look at these holes uh, yeah. and you look at the description of them, yeah, it looks like a speaker from the seventies. <laughs> if
1: you didn't know but what it was, could this be a propulsion
2: right. system? I just I love like going on and on about how it could be some kind of spacecraft, and then it's like, no, it's an ashtray with a speaker on it, or whatever. So <laughs> In just, our
0: defense, yes.
2: I will say, <laughs> unlike
0: a lot of people who come at us uh, with criticisms we never say like, well, that's ridiculous. That could never be the case. I mean, we might say something sounds silly or maybe it does sound ridiculous, but we're the first to tell you, we don't know. Yeah. Whereas others will say like, I could tell you absolutely it was not this or it was this or that. It's like, we don't know, but we are here on the show, like exploring the possibilities. So one thing you have to look at, well, atomic radiation, was this thing radioactive? And they didn't know it much like the Falcon Lake case east of uh, Winnipeg is where that happened. In the 70s, well, uh, radiation has now come into our zeitgeist here. And one of the unique reasons that the boys said they chose to wrap this thing up in rags, one account, of course, says Maury placed a cushion on top of it. They thought this thing could be leaking atomic radiation. And of course, you know, Scott and I will tell you growing up with all this uh, 50s sci-fi extending into the 60s, into the 70s, Radiation was a big part of our growing up and our fears of uh, making giant monster spiders that then had to be blown up or uh, Godzilla. It was on everyone's minds still as we were growing up as linked to these types of uh, weird phenomena and sci-fi and popular culture. And I think you can draw this conclusion by the boys as witnessing this glue-like or slime-like substance while they were looking into the perforations on the bottom side, that they, they saw the sludge. Again, it's the movie, it's the sci-fi movie, The Blob or The Sludge. There's something wrong with it. And you just think like, well, what do we got? We got rags. So we'll just pile those on top and uh, put a chair cushion on top just for safety, you know, because that'll stop anything.
2: Well, it's funny you should say this because uh, there's a section here that Micah. I want to give him credit for because this is a really fascinating uh, little dive into this. He talks about the, you know, possible psychological interpretation that might be inferred here would be, as you said, a connection to atomic weapons that were used against Japan at the end of World War II. Many film experts have pointed out a similar psychological interpretation of the most famous Japanese kaiju, Godzilla, which is a monster that is created resulting from experiments with atomic weapons. Godzilla, in other words, becomes the monstrous personification of Japan's inner struggle to come to terms with the horrible effects of atomic weapons in real life. Even more interesting is the way that Godzilla, originally conceived of as an antagonist, is later recast in many later Japanese kaiju films as a heroic monster who actually defends planet Earth against attacks by other monsters. In this way the real world horror of atomic weapons can be reconceived of and channeled through fiction as a force for protection and good. Following this line of thought it is at least plausible that a similar psychological fear of the atomic age and its effects might have been at play with the children and the cure object although that still did not prevent them from hitting it with hammers and attempting to put it in the oven <laughs> <laughs> Well
0: that's what I'm saying you gotta push it to the limit here it's like you, that's one of the recurring themes with this is that Hey, let's throw rocks at it until it it buzzes or glows blue or shoots beams of uh, light at us. Then we run away. This keeps happening over and over again. So they're very adventurous. They're also afraid of it. It's all the great elements, though. As we said at the top of the show with the quote, there's always a fascination about something with kids that is interesting, but also possibly a little dangerous.
2: That's in our DNA. We want to poke the little alien bear. Yeah. See what want, happens. Yeah. See what happens. Well, with the other kids departing to their homes for dinner and evening chores, Seo and Mori remained together, returning to Mori's house and keeping the object in their possession. While the other boys were away, Seo and Mori relaxed and read comic books for most of the evening. Here we are. We're back in Stranger Things land. Later, (laughs) when the other children returned, they were shocked to find that even while in the same room with Seo and Mori, but wrapped tightly and buried beneath a pile of rags, the object had seemingly vanished. It would not remain gone for long, however, since it was recovered again shortly thereafter, while Kojima and Mori were playing ball at night outside of Mori's home. According to the account given by Rob Morphy, it was at this time that the decision had been made to mark the object with paint or similar substance to help determine in the event of a further escape and subsequent recovery if it was, in fact, the same object as before. Some accounts, as noted earlier, seem to indicate that this had occurred prior to their most extensive examination of the craft. In any case, precautions were now being made by the group to keep the object within their sight at all times, with one of the boys usually keeping it in a backpack. Uh Uh-huh. So,
0: there you go. Well, I wonder if there was any arguments about who is going to hang on to it as you would normally have with a a group of kids. Who who gets it? uh, Much like a a coveted comic book or some other prize. Well, I, I get it Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays and we alternate Saturdays or Sundays. Well, at this point, it's Michio Mori, or Michi Mori, who is credited with coming up with this unusual scheme for keeping the object from escaping again, which was based on their belief that somehow this object was afraid or affected by water. It either was its kryptonite, as we said earlier, or it was attracted to it. Something caused it to regard water in some way. And it was their belief that since it was affected somehow by water, that water could be used to control this thing. So the craft was then sealed in a plastic bag that had been partially filled with water. And in addition to this, they tied a string or a cord around the bag, or at least the top where it was cinched off, And that was fastened to the wrist of whichever boy happened to be carrying it at the time. So according to the boy's logic, this was a foolproof way, maybe a little devious, plan to prevent this thing from getting away once again. This has happened several times now. Well, this can't fail. It's in a bag with some water in it. We know that uh, it seems to affect the object. And we got a string tied around it attached to the wrist, which, uh, boy, I hope that thing doesn't take off like a shot. You could have an injury there. But that's according to a young kid's logic. Well, this is the final time that the boys would have the object in their possession. And this time it was concealed in a backpack and kept with the boys at all time. So they did not leave this thing out of their sight, except that, of course, it's in a bag and in a backpack. But the string is around someone's wrist at all times, whoever was carrying the backpack. Now, the group of friends carried this object with them as they traveled around the community on their bicycles. Except that despite this master plan here, this thing escapes once again. And it vanishes under really odd circumstances. It just simply disappears from the back. So as these boys are riding their bikes, now the story goes that whomever had been carrying it at the time felt a sudden sharp tugging on the cord, which was fastened to his wrist. And he, he called out, the group stopped immediately. They opened the knapsack to examine the craft and somehow it had disappeared. Now, this is interesting here though, that according to this version of the story, the knots around the bag had not been undone. The cord was still attached. It's not like this thing <laughs> where this little creature guy got out and he, he uh, sawed through the bag or he untied the knot. That was still in place. And the bag that was connected to the string was still attached to the boy's wrist. They just felt a jerk on it. And and I guess that goes to this interdimensional theory about the craft, that it just pops in and pops out, either according to its own will or certain conditions, or it knows it's headed for more trouble, so it just disappears when they're not expecting it. But at this point,
2: after this, The boys said they never saw this object again. So now on October 26th at approximately 6.30 p.m., Fujimoto's mother reportedly observed, quote, a small UFO flying low from the north on the way home from her nursery school to pick up her daughter, end quote. The small object was traveling due south, and Miss Fujimoto observed it heading in the direction of Mount Fuji, quote, flickering up and down without sound, with the bottom half flashing red and blue, end quote. Hmm. This is another mother citing an object in the area. Again, we're taking it out of the hands of the kids, this story. Now, the author of the post at the Japanese language My X Files website also notes having observed something in the area at the time of the Kira incident. He was 16 years old at the time. Now, according to the author, he'd been escorting another researcher to the neighborhood where the boys had their alleged encounter, since the story had been widely reported by the local media at that time. As they approached just around sundown, they observed a strange object moving toward the south. Uh, This is a quote from the website. It was when I approached the boys' residential area with a researcher from Kansai. It was 7 o'clock at night, and there was still abundant sunlight. Strangely enough, we both simultaneously saw a falling object moving toward the south. It was a small light that glowed white, a light body that fell rapidly from the back of a low hill to about 15 kilometers in elevation. I clearly remember the meandering light trail it produced, end quote. So there's other things going on at the time in the area, which begs the question if that smaller device that they encountered, the curer object, was some kind of drone Could it have been dispatched from another larger craft of some kind that was in the area? Because it's interesting that these adults are seeing these other UFOs, although this gentleman was 16 at the time, and he was looking for something, paying Mm -hmm. attention. But it's interesting to think that all of this stuff was going on at around the same time period. And not just in Japan.
0: We're going to talk a little bit here about a case that sounds very similar
2: that happened in Finland. Yeah, that's coming up here in a bit. Well, uh, Forrest, why don't you take over here and talk a little bit about uh, Sutomo Seki? Well, this other investigation that takes place now
0: is by Sutomo who who is a Kochi-based astronomer, and he took an interest in the case, even going so far as to visit the Fujimoto home and get interviews with all the witnesses involved in the incident. And that photo we snagged from one of the Japanese uh, blogs, and that's on our part one, and we'll be on the part two. Webpage for the episode. Well, this aspect of the story is intriguing because Mr. Secchi is still alive today and reportedly interviewed the witnesses just days after the incident. And later, Secchi even published an article on the case in an astronomy magazine. So what's significant here is that his interest in the case does not appear to be mentioned in most versions of the story that appear in the English language online instances here. Uh, the, the one exception being Lucius Farish and Dale Titler's article in Saga from 1974. Well, Secchi also operates an English language website with the help of an Australian-based astronomer friend who works as his translator, and it can be found online at uh, comet-web.net, and we'll have that link as well. So here's a little background on Tsutomu Seki. He was born on November 30th, 1930, and he's an astronomer credited with the discovery of several comets and minor planets. So he's kind of a serious dude here. And he's also the first amateur astronomer to photograph the famous Halley's Comet in September of 1984. So between 1961 and 1970, Seki managed to discover half a dozen comets, including the celebrated bright C1965S1, which is also known as Ikea Seki. And according to his Wikipedia page, Seki is listed as the director of the Geisai Observatory in Kochi and, quote, in charge of the comet section of the Oriental Astronomical Association, end quote. So now about that September 1984 sighting of uh, Halley's Comet here, this is what's reported in the New York Times that goes along with his achievement. Quote, Tsutomu Seki of Japan, a veteran comet hunter, appeared to be the first amateur astronomer to have photographed Halley's Comet as it races through the solar system towards the sun. Mr. Seki reported photographing the comet last Saturday and again Thursday. He gave a position for the first date that matched that predicted by the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory here. On Thursday, the comet was almost superimposed on the image of a distant star, making it difficult to calculate a precise position. Dr. Brian Marsden, director of the Observatory's Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams, believes Mr. Secchi is probably the first amateur to photograph the comet. An almost simultaneous claim by a Canadian amateur gave a position that was substantially off. End quote. And that's from that New York Times article on him. So, this is all going to show that he's a pretty serious amateur astronomer, knows what he's doing, and has some achievements. So, in addition to comets, Seki is credited with the discovery of several asteroids, including the 13553, Masa Akikoyama, a near Earth asteroid, and uh, 5209. 1989 CW1, boy, you astronomy nerds are going crazy over this, yeah. <laughs> a Jupiter Trojan, uh, a- actually astronomically, it's Jupiter Trojans, also known simply as Jupiters, which are asteroids which share a common orbit with Jupiter and the Sun. And that technically makes them Jovian moons or moonlets. So many of Seki's discoveries are named after famous sites in and around his home in Kochi. And examples of this include... Harima Yabashi, and Ryoma, the latter being named after Sakamoto Ryoma, a late Edo period samurai. And asteroid 3426 Seki, discovered by Carl Reinmuth at the Heidelberg Observatory in 1932, was renamed after Seki in 1986. So there you go. He's uh, got some accomplishments in the field of astronomy under his belt. So this guy is not your average tinfoil hat-wearing bumpkin. He's a serious... Amateur, but serious
2: scientist here. Well, being a lifelong resident of Kochi, Seki actually appeared on a Saturday call in radio program that reportedly aired just 10 days after the events involving the boys and their adventures with the Kira object. Wishing to tell the astronomer of their experiences, the boys called the radio station and left a message for Seki, noted Farish and Titler in 1974, asking that he call them when the program was finished. Following their introduction, Seki contacted an amateur astronomer and colleague named Koichi Ike from Tosa City, who was interested in the subject of UFOs. Ike was first to visit the boys, and after finding their unusual story to be of interest, reported it back to Seki. Seki then visited the site and interviewed nine witnesses, the boys and their parents, which occurred at the Fujimoto home. Quote, the boys were all serious students who could study well and gave the impression that the incident seemed credible, end quote, according to Japanese UFO casebook blog. Quote, the astronomer was so impressed with the account that he incorporated it into his recent book, In Search of the New Stars, end quote, noted Farish and Titler. Japanese UFO researcher Junichi Takanashi read the report in Seki's book and publicized it in the UFO newsletter of Japan's Modern Space Flight Association. And here's what's interesting. When Michael was researching this, he found that book on Amazon Japan, and he actually gave us a link to it. I went to uh, try and click on it. I could not purchase it. I could not make Amazon Japan work for me. And then I couldn't get the book (laughs) to come up on Amazon, not Japan. So it didn't work out. But uh, Mm. he does mention that the first product review in it makes it clear that there is an overview of the cure incident in the book. That's the review on Amazon Japan. We have a link to it. You can take a look at that in the show notes if you want. Now, although Seki is generally reported to have been impressed with the witnesses and their story, he had also expressed some skepticism about certain elements of it. For instance, he'd wondered if the sightings of alleged UFOs in the area could have been birds flying over the rice paddy, off of which the bright lights from a nearby golf course could have been reflecting. Seki, being a local, was also aware of a legend in the general vicinity of the rice paddy involving a kappa like monster called Shibatan which was one of the long-held superstitions in the area. Because of this urban legend, equivalent to stories of haunted lovers' lanes in various places here in the United States, Secchi also questioned why a group of boys would have been playing there. As we'll see later, Seki's skepticism about the case would increase with time. You know, I was very curious about the kappa. These are actually some quotes about the kappa from a folklore page on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. The kappa are known to favor cucumbers and love to Hmm. engage in sumo wrestling. They are often (laughs) accused of assaulting humans in water and removing a mythical organ called the shirikodama from their victim's anus. Oh, So that's just another fun Japanese... Yeah. yeah, they do
0: weird things. <laughs> These uh, yokai.
2: Some yeah, there's a yeah. there's a here's another entry. This is on uh, Wikipedia for Tengu. The people of Kochi Prefecture on Shikoku believe in a creature called Shibaten or Shibatengu, a lawn Tengu. But this is a small, childlike being who loves sumo wrestling and sometimes dwells in the water and is generally considered one of many kinds of kappa. Um, and so I looked this up we have some links to it there's another page Deviant mm-hmm. Art, where somebody's draw one of these things apparently they like to pop out of the water and wrestle you and they because they're so much stronger than a person they'll actually just wrestle you all night long just, they never get tired so <laughs> wow that sounds
0: exhausting yeah you're in
2: trouble until they get more cucumbers yeah Well, as most foolhardy teenagers who've ever gone ghost hunting on a whim will know, it can be argued that a field allegedly haunted by a demonic monster is precisely the kind of place a group of bored middle schoolers would want to hang around on weekend nights, especially if they began seeing strange lights around the area. Micah notes here in our outline, this might provide a bit of additional insight into the boys' initial observation of the UFO over the field, which appearing brightly lit and at a distance, they likened to a ghost light. This makes Mm -hmm. even more sense, particularly since the area had a bit of a reputation for urban legends and paranormal activity.
0: Well, there you go. That just falls in
2: line with the rest of the places in the world, and especially the U.S., while there were other investigations, when researcher Kazuo Shimitsu and others interviewed the boys, their impressions had been that something really happened, particularly because the boys did not give conflicting accounts about the appearance of the UFO. All of their descriptions appeared to have matched.
0: Well, the case was featured on television and other media around that time, and the writer Shusaku Endo featured the story as part of an essay he published entitled, I'm a Bunch of Curiosity. Ah, which we we both are,
2: I have a feeling something was lost in translation there on that. Well,
0: <laughs> no, but. you have to realize that it, some of the spirit you could say of a phrase doesn't exactly translate as smoothly to English, but you get the sense of uh, what he's trying to convey here in that we are both, all of us listening now, bunches of curiosity. Well, (laughs) uh, the case was reopened in 2004 when UFO Comics published a manga-style dramatization of the Kira story, reintroducing it into Japanese culture and intriguing a new generation of UFO enthusiasts. And it took a comic book, it took a a manga to get this case re-looked at. Now 35 years had passed since the main events in question happened. When the case was officially reopened in 2007 by Shinichiro Namiki, who was the director of Japan Space Phenomena Society. Now, Namiki-san, who has a notable publication and investigation history with the UFO subject, tasked the head of the organization's Osaka chapter, Kazuo Hayashi, to go and speak with any witnesses who could be located and who were still alive and residing in the area. And according to Hayashi, who was able to locate and interview many of the witnesses, all of whom he spoke with, still maintained that the original events
2: of 1972 were true and accurate. Nobody went back on their story. I really think that says something, especially when you have this many people involved. That's usually when somebody is going to crack, although there are some things coming up that we're going to share with you that will lead you to believe that there is the possibility of a hoax here. I also think you
0: do have to look at this case through the lens of Japanese culture. And the fact that uh, they view this type of hoax and activity, and also respect and shame, differently than we do here, because we have
2: no shame in the U.S. <laughs> we definitely—we just do. want to be on TV. Well, here's another story that I thought was pretty compelling. I was glad to see this dug up. Hayashi not only spoke to the original group of boys whose story had brought him to Kochi, he also learned the story of a girl who claimed to have had a remarkably similar experience four years after the events of 1972, and we were able to take the maps from the Japanese blogs that Micah dug up for this and look on these maps and line it up with Google Earth, as I said earlier, so we can actually pinpoint where the Kira object sighting originally was. And I was able to take that and map it to this area that we're about to talk to, the village of Agawa. That's how it was known back then. It is now known by the name Nayadogawa Cho. But looking at the distance between these two areas, as the crow flies, it's about 18 miles. However, if you're going to drive it, it's 55 kilometers or 34 miles. It's about an hour and 10 minute drive, according to Google Earth today, to get to this area. But going in a straight line, it's 18 miles. I did a little tape measure thing on Google Earth for that. Oh. So uh, <laughs> I, want to, I want to relay this story right now. The story began on June 6th, 1976, in the village of Agawa. Sachiko so Oyama, who was nine years old at the time, had gone outside to find her cat when she first noticed a yellow light in the sky toward the east. The young girl continued to watch the object as it descended over a patch of trees just a short distance away. And intrigued by the strange light, she began to walk in the direction she had watched it moving. At this point, as Oyama watched the light moving closer to the trees, it apparently struck one of them, causing it to ricochet and plummet toward the ground, where it struck the pavement just a few feet away from her. As the motionless object rested on the ground, Oyama described hearing it produce a hissing noise. Oyama's general description was not unlike that of Seo Mori, and the children from Kochi. She said it was hat-shaped and silver-colored, although according to some accounts, the color is described as being black rather than silver. Feeling no concern about approaching the object, young Oyama reached out and touched it and described there being a slimy substance covering it, which stuck to her finger as she moved her hand away from it. Although she had not felt fear up until this time, Oyama suddenly became frightened of the object and ran back in the direction of her home. Once she was a safe distance away, she looked back in the direction of the fallen object and saw that it appeared to be producing the same yellow light again that she had first noticed when it was airborne. Then the object quickly ascended, spinning three times as it took off at a high rate of speed and disappeared. Oyama was 40 years old once Hayashi learned of her story and was able to speak with her. And like the boys from Kochi, she also maintained that her childhood experience from 1976 had been entirely true. Well, this next case here, which is similar,
0: is also really fascinating because there's really good photos in this one. Yeah. And this mention also comes from my friend John in his email exchange back and forth where he said, hey, here's another similar story. Have you guys heard about this? And I don't believe I ever had.
2: No, I hadn't heard of it either. I bet Rob Christopherson has, but I, yeah, it it's not something I had known.
0: <laughs> no, I'm, he's actually doing a series on tiny UFOs, and I love it, though. On the very, very rare occasion, we get to stump him. Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll see heard if anything, so I doubt we'll, it. I
2: seriously doubt it, but we'll see.
0: Also, this uh, appears as a clip from Open Minds TV on YouTube. They're Of course, they're a really good uh, resource for all sorts of UFO encounters and a database and commentary, and they have this thing featured. There's a two-and-a-half-minute clip that explains the story quickly, but uh, we also found entries on this from a couple of other websites, which are not real descriptive, but we'll read this uh, off to you here. So this encounter happened on March 16th, 1979, in Finland, in a city called Sjönenjöki, in the northern Savonia region. And the person involved in this encounter was named Jarmo Nikkanen, And he was watching his friend's cabin while his friend was off on vacation for a few days. And probably on the first night, I think he was there, he was kind of inspecting the cabin. And something caught his eye that was flashing a light. And this is the the descriptive entry here in ufodatabase.com. Suddenly, Yarmo heard a humming sound obliquely from behind. He turned around. At an altitude of about two meters, he saw a tiny blue glowing bell-shaped mini UFO. Now he started taking photos of the UFO. It radiated blue light and moved forward, descending and ascending. It ascended and descended and wandered from side to side in its travel. And this looks like some type of monitoring device or probe to me. I guess that's the person who wrote the entry here. Uh, After having taken about five photos, he started walking towards the UFO. Then the UFO disappeared. So that's the beginning of the encounter, but it's better described in the Open Minds TV clip here, which has about, like I said, two and a half minutes of the of the case. There are some similarities in that this object uh, is about 20 inches in diameter, so it's bigger. The shape of the hat is not completely similar to Kira in that it's more of an old fashioned hat. It's larger, as we said. It slopes up, so it's not as bell-shaped. It's got more of a peak to it, but a rounded top. So you'll be able to see photos of that. But what's interesting from the account is that, like Kira, this thing was emanating lights, a blue glowing light from the top, but the bottom part was showing a red light which lit up the snow underneath it. So it was emanating a, a glow of red light while the top part was glowing blue. So that's similar to Kira in that there's several colors coming out of this thing. Uh the flight pattern is similar in that it seems to be a little erratic, maybe not as darting around as Michio described the Kira object, like a bat trying to catch insects. This thing was just kind of going up and down and back and forth. And so he approached it and he took several photos. Then, of course, the object disappears. I think the next day he goes back and sees where this thing had tried to land or somehow it had been making impressions in the snow. And when he mapped those out at the edge of the wood, he noticed that it formed kind of a triangle, which he took to mean a direction, that the triangle was pointing in a direction. So he walked out there and, like Kira, he sees this thing again floating in the trees there and he takes a couple more photographs. But as he's approaching, he stumbles and falls, and this catches the attention of the object, which shoots at him a bright red beam of light, which temporarily blinds him, and I believe from the account, it, a puff of red smoke comes out, this thing takes off and, and shoots out away and, and is gone. Now, as he stumbles back to the cabin, he meets his friend, who has returned from vacation, and his friend notices that he's got two red marks, bleeding red marks above his nose and that he looks not great, a little dazed, confused, a little beat up. But that was the account. And so, like the Kira object, the Yoki object, it's not really got that name, I just just like saying the the name of the town (laughs) where it was found, Uh, it it noticed him. It noticed some interaction, and it also shot a beam of light at the person with some effect. Now, Michio, though, it just scared him away when it shot that initial white beam of light at him. This one seems to maybe have either injured him or maybe he fell and injured and it just it blinded him and he didn't notice that he had a bump on his nose that was bleeding. Again, the other thing that's really significant about this is that there are pretty good photos that you can obviously see the shape of this thing. And it's it's a silvery, dull color. And again, this is March 16th, 1979. So years after the Kira object, totally different country.
2: Similar shape, similar actions. Similar size. Yeah.
0: What do you think about that?
2: Well, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's small. It's got no visible means of propulsion, the lights, everything. Again, it seems like a little drone. And also, I would say, based on what we've learned since we started the show, it's questionable what happened when he got knocked down or knocked out. He could have had missing time and not even known it, especially if he didn't have a watch on or something like that. So yeah. there's that whole aspect of it, although I don't know where something that tiny would take you or what it would do with you, but it's... <laughs> well, it just, you know, just
0: needs to knock you out for a bit.
2: Possibly, kind of but I mean, what I'm saying is when he was unconscious, God only knows what happened to him, if you believe yeah. any of this at all. I mean, that's the...
0: <laughs> sure. It's,
2: but the pictures are pretty compelling in that case, and and it does help to corroborate what the boy saw. And when you look at that incident and you look at the other incident that happened so close to where the cure object was sighted, it does make you wonder, well, you know what? Hey, maybe they are telling the truth. Again, the only thing you can do
0: is, is if you take these eyewitness accounts to be mostly accurate, accurate at all, then you line up parallels and commonalities. And like with the, the young girls sighting, this thing also seemed to be not broken, but it crashed into the trees. That's another UFO trope where if people do get a sight of this kind of thing or get up close to it, somehow it's malfunctioning in some way. Yeah. So these things aren't perfect. Right. (laughs) It's like the Mallory Island incident. The description was that one of the silver flat donut shaped craft seemed to be malfunctioning. It was wobbling while it was in formation with these other ones until it, it dumped a bunch of hot metal ingots down onto the, onto the boat, into the water, some on the beach And it seemed to write itself. Right. So it was kind of self-correcting. But the people, I believe, in part of the original description was that these seemed to be automatically controlled, that it wasn't like nine pilots or six pilots in formation, that uh, somehow there seemed to be mechanical or artificial control with all the objects and that there was a problem with one of them. So with the little girl's account, this thing smacked into the trees and fell down onto the ground and was kind of malfunctioning and maybe that's the case with the kira object and that it was zipping around but it wasn't operating properly therefore it could not fulfill its uh, proper duty This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus This is Missy in Texas, and when I'm not hunting cryptids in Appalachia, I am listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. All
2: right, as we're getting to a close on these two episodes, this two-parter on the Kira Object, this is the fun part. I've been looking forward to this. It's time for us to talk about theories and conclusions as we're wrapping this up. And we both have a lot of ideas about it. This one has real potential to be... Just a hoax, but it also has potential to be something else. And as I said a few minutes ago, I love really analyzing what might have just been an ashtray. That's my, one of my favorite parts of this, this whole <laughs> encounter. <laughs> well, it's an
0: ashtray from another dimension. So,
2: yeah, right.
0: And I just wonder if there were butts inside down in the bottom.
2: Yeah, space butts. Well, why don't you talk about the first one that we were going to go over here?
0: Yeah, there are a lot of theories about the origin of what this thing might have been. They're real varied, but they all kind of fall, though, into that typical trope, I guess, of UFO theories. And this now includes theories from UFO researchers and thinkers around the world. But something that I want to mention here, that English language narration clip of the TV documentary that we'll have posted to our part two, which is a Japanese gentleman. I, I think he's pretty much following Rob's article, I believe. But something that he said that was interesting is that in 1972, there wasn't a whole lot of developed thought and discussion and investigation going around about UFOs in Japan at that point. I believe UFO sightings and, and weird stuff has been happening since people inhabited their particular lands. <laughs> that woman coming out of the, uh, out of the sea, and I, I believe that was like 1801 or something. That, that's a famous case. I'm just thinking of that off the top of my head. That could have been tied to a UFO, but is also wrapped in Japanese folklore of how she appeared and what she presented and how she acted. So these things are contained in an envelope of cultural filters, as we said earlier. But these following theories are going to be pretty much what I I think nowadays we tend to look at as far as categories of theories. And the first one would be interdimensional craft. Now, I, I think this is one of my favorites, if not the one I'm going to land on here. Oh, I just oh. spoiled it. Well, you didn't care. No. So, we've been talking about this anyway beforehand.
2: Well, that's good. Well, we, we know go- what I can do to unspoil it is I'm going to go ahead oh. and disagree with you preemptively, but you go ahead. I see, I see. <laughs> I'm not saying it's none of the
0: other things, but if the reports are true or accurate as they have been, then yeah, it's that explanation that takes care of a lot of the disappearing and reappearing aspects of it and also the weirdness that we can't understand about it. Well, following Hayashi's 2007 invest reinvestigation of the case, he concluded that both the initial Kira object and the one encountered years later by Sachiko Oyama were of interdimensional origin, having somehow become lost on Earth for a short period of time. However, it's kind of unclear, though, what made this particular theory seem most viable to Hayashi, apart from the similar ideas that it occasionally appears in general discussions about UFOs, and theories about their origins. So before I had read that part of it, probably back to the Bet sphere, when I had heard that it mysteriously disappears. And again, you, you'd taken the narrative as being accurate. And I don't think these things are um, as problematic as some would have them when you look at some of the details that aren't lining up. Like, well, who was there initially on that first evening? What time of day it was? Why aren't these reported facts lining up. Well, that's very suspicious. Well, let's look at the agreed-upon elements of the narrative, and I mean agreed-upon by all the boys who witnessed it and had it in their possession, supposedly, that this thing really did kind of disappear and reappear. And finally, while they were watching it, while it was under tight guard, under towels and a bag in a knapsack with a string tied to it, or string tied to the end of the bread sack there, and to one of the boys' wrists, he feels a jerk They all stop. He calls out. The boys are riding ahead of them. They all stop. They turn around. This thing's gone. Yeah. So when you break it down to try and make logic out of it, like, well, if he was in the back of the pack, did he undo the bag while it was in the backpack and wanted to steal it for himself later? And he chucked it into a field and then later claimed like, wait, wait a second. This thing just disappeared. Well, it was at the house, also one of the parents, and it disappeared while in possession. So if you look at those, then this thing is magically disappearing and not just flying out the window when people aren't looking. This thing got out from a sealed
2: bag. And that's the thing that I wonder about it. The other thing that's interesting to me is that it seemed to have a limited sort of simplistic, almost movie-like form of AI to it, where it could fly and do some things on its own, but it didn't seem to have any real good defense systems. And it didn't seem like it was necessarily ready to be out in the field. It reminded me a little bit of WALL-E or something. It's just like, <laughs> well, yeah, I work. I'm, I'm programmed to do this stuff. Wait, what do you do? Why are you holding? Wait, you're throwing rags on me? What's happening? You know, just <laughs> the question that you think about is, if this craft was made by someone or something, some alien technology, whether it's organic or inorganic or whatever it is, and it's smart enough to get to Earth especially via interdimensional technology, why isn't it smart enough to... Not get caught in the first place. Why doesn't it have any evasive <laughs> capabilities, especially on a populated planet? Or is it okay? I mean, and we're going to come down to drones and stuff like that, but like, right. It's visiting a highly populated planet with, you know, air quotes, intelligent life on it. Uh-huh. That you'd think that yeah. it would be more capable of defending itself and remaining undetected.
0: Yeah, I, I really did not mean to get into it with you right at the beginning of yeah. uh, this this section here, but let's just get this out in the open. Okay, one. That case I was thinking of earlier was called Utsurubune.
2: Yeah, Utsurubune. Yeah, I'm sorry. I should have said that. I knew exactly what you're talking about. And it (laughs) came up in a boat, by the way.
0: A hollow vessel, yes. So, uh, bune means boat. It didn't fly,
2: but it was shaped like a cone. I know so more it's a U.S.O. It's an it's an undersea Well, uh, if it object. went under the water, they didn't see it go under the water either. Well, it washed ashore. Yeah. And
0: that was 1803 in the Hitachi province on the eastern coast of Japan. I'm just looking at the uh, wiki yeah. here. Uh, it's also known as a uh, Utsuru Fune or Urubune. Yeah. So, uh the fishermen saw her, but it was a, a young woman, a, a visitor. So that's what I'm saying is that when we were saying before that uh that one narrator said like well uFO and you could hear the narration for yourself, but he was saying like uFOs were not really discussed much in nineteen seventy two in Japan well these things have not with the terms that we have now, right Of course, I believe these things have always been happening in their various forms, and you can look at the airships of the nineteenth century happening and and that's actually a good point here is that uh what is the true form of these things? Do they just fit?" the time so people can understand them or is there some psychic link where people of the time can only interpret this weirdo object in visuals and terms that they can understand in their lifetime. But in this case, the one thing I was going to say, though, addressing the wackiness of the unprepared defenses in this thing, and it's, it's flashing lights and like, oh, release the memory smoke and make these kids forget or there's it's flashing lights making loud popping noises at them. It seems to be woefully... Underskilled, invasive techniques, although it did get away. Yes, it got caught again, but it kept getting away and finally did make its permanent escape. I go back to the point, maybe this thing was malfunctioning, kind of like the impression I got with the Bet sphere. And we're going to be making more parallels to that object because I, I do think that they are tied in a kind of a philosophical way. UFO philo- philosophical philology. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? I just made that <laughs> up. I just want to see if you're paying attention. He didn't look up for a moment from his mic and then he... I could see the gears turning and you just realized that, uh, I'm just making up crap here, no. but, uh, yeah, but <laughs> most of it gets by you, but not to a lot of our well-informed listening audience. The bet sphere to me, the impression I got was that this thing did a lot more in other conditions. It was perhaps part of another piece of machinery Yes, that it was dislodged from or, or somehow got separated that the bet sphere found in the field near Jacksonville out, you know, that flat open area was not the entire thing itself in the way that it was meant to be operating because it did some things like it seemed to know the edges of the coffee table. When you put it on there, it could follow the creases in the floor, the cracks in the floor where the tiles were. So it seemed to have some sensing capabilities, much like the Kira object. It could sense people approaching. It seemed like, it could sense that, uh, yes, you just dumped a bunch of uh, <laughs> rainwater into my opening. Thank you very much. And, uh, and here's some goo for your trouble. It had some capability in sensing the environment around it and maneuvering. Like it didn't take a, a head first dive right into the rice paddy, burrowing itself into the dirt. It did seem to have some sensing capability, but not perhaps fully functioning. So like the bet sphere, it did some things. I, one of the most compelling things is that they put it on a piece of plexiglass at the National Enquirer, uh, the press conference with the military and some authorities, and you tilt it up, and it starts spinning upward up the ramp that they just created. Yeah. So it could tell gravity. It could sense the edge of tables, and it could defend itself a little, but it
2: didn't really try to get away from people. Oh, by the way, I'm glad you said that. I wanted to know if anyone out there was an expert in... FOIA requests, because there's one that I would like to file or we would like to file. We haven't done it before. And I know mm-hmm. that we may have some of you guys that are in the research core may already have that expertise. If you do, just uh, get word to me through our um, back channels yes. there. And if not, then uh, if anyone would like to reach out to us via Twitter or any other way who's had considerable experience with FOIA requests, there is one I want to file So or that we, we need to file.
0: Yeah, we have an official form that you fill out to send to us for an astonishing legends freedom of information of astonishing information
2: uh, <laughs> do form. We? i wish we did though yeah it'll
0: take 6 months when we finally get around <laughs> to it and then uh, and then we'll use that and it'll take another year to get to get the information if we ever do get it so that's one point in in addressing why this thing was acting kind of wacky because it's making these hairpin turns in the air and it's acting like it's trying to catch insects. Well, if you saw a bat and it was flying like that and you try to compare it to a bird, it's like, well, why is it flying like that? That seems really inefficient. Birds don't fly like that. And then you have to realize like, well, it's not exactly a bird. <laughs> they both can fly, but one's a rodent with wings and that's how it flies using sonar for its ultimate objective, which is capturing bugs. But if you couldn't see the bugs, you just think that this thing couldn't fly very well. Like, why is it flipping all around in the air? And certainly if you've ever seen them at night, you'll see them under a street lamp or something, or they're illuminated. They're
2: everywhere. That's just where you happen to see them, because the bugs
0: are around the lamp. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that you can see the bugs, and then you put it together. Like, oh, they're catching bugs, and that's just how they do that. But they are actually very precise flyers. Now, somebody who was a medium predicted at my trip at Waverly, I, I think I mentioned this in the series. One of us on the team would get thunked in the head somehow by something. Yeah. The closest that happened was a a bat flew by my head with about six to eight inches to spare. Uh Uh-huh. And I could hear the flap and I could feel the wind. And I didn't think it was a spirit. I knew it was a bat because Waverly's open. It's got bats. Yeah. But it knew not to thunk me in the head. You know what I'm saying? It it could tell I was walking there. Yeah. And uh, it didn't crash into anything else. So it's flying erratically to our eyes, but you don't know what it's doing. Is it doing what it's supposed to? Is it supposed to fly like that? And then to the bigger point I'm trying to make here is that we can all get in trouble when you try to apply what we consider rational, logical behavior or patterns to something that is not from our world, apparently or supposedly. So we don't really know what this thing is supposed to do or how it's supposed to behave judging from what we think makes sense. We're trying to apply our limited sense of uh rationality to something that is seemingly irrational and doesn't behave the way that we think it should. But how do we know if this thing is is a real object? We don't know what it's supposed to be doing. Like I don't know what the Bet Sphere that what the purpose is of that thing, other than I think if it was made by a higher intelligence The purpose was not to just roll around in a field and confound people from the National Enquirer. It had a bigger purpose or something that we can't understand as a piece of a bigger part of machinery. So anyway, those are my thoughts about starting out here, just being cautious and careful and mindful that we're not trying to judge what makes sense or does not make sense with this thing. It could have been broken. It could have been operating exactly as it was meant to. But we just don't understand what those parameters are because we're tiny, small-brained humans.
2: Well, now that we've covered the first of our multiple (laughs) theories here, we we went off the deep end already. Well, I wanted to remind everybody that when Forrest was mentioning Hayashi a minute ago, that's Kazuo Hayashi who was the person that Shinichiro Namiki, the director of the Japan Space Phenomena Society, had tasked with reopening that investigation in 2007. So that's who Hayashi is, if you hear us talk Mm -hmm. about Hayashi. I know we just talked about it a minute ago, but there's a lot of names to keep up with here. Yeah, so let's talk about the possibility of an alien scout vehicle. And again, some of these things overlap, whether it's interdimensional. Interdimensional is really about how it got here what its task was can be part of that. So it could be an interdimensional alien scout vehicle, or it could just be an alien scout vehicle that travels by more conventional methods. Who knows? Right. But Or it could be an alien toy. Could be a toy. Yeah. Didn't think of that, did you? No, I didn't think of that. Well, And that neither did I until just this moment. So Well, without going so far as to suppose, as Hayashi did, that the object had extra dimensional origins, its size and generally alien characteristics might be interpreted as having been some variety of scout drone or other... Extraterrestrial device. So, what's particularly intriguing in this regard is the fact that some of the most famous UFO incidents in history actually involve small drone-like aircraft or objects like the Cure Object. The best example is probably this case in October first, nineteen forty-eight. It's a case known as the Gorman Dogfight. This is oh, pretty yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Anybody that's watching Project Blue Book probably saw it on there. It was dramatized on there. And what happened with the Gorman dogfight is on the night in question, it's named for the gentleman that was involved in it, World War II veteran pilot George F. Gorman encountered and pursued a small illuminated object while flying over Fargo, North Dakota. Now, according to his description of the object, I'm quoting him here, it was about Mm -hmm. six to eight inches in diameter, clear white, and completely without fuzz at the edges. It was blinking on and off. As I approached, however, the light suddenly became steady and it pulled into a sharp left bank. I thought it was making a pass at the tower. End quote. So, the interesting thing about this is that Gorman's description is a little reminiscent of the size and the luminative characteristics described by Michio Seo and his friends during the Kira object incident in 1972. So that doesn't necessarily prove the boy's account, but it does provide some degree of historical precedent for a small, brightly lit flying object capable of unconventional propulsion, as does the other story we told just a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And that's my overall point. Whether you're like leaning towards this being a hoax or an exaggeration, the simple fact of the matter is... Especially if you include the girl for, who lived about twenty miles away, is that mm-hmm. there are other stories of similar devices with similar characteristics, and they might not all be identical. Some of them might be more identical. They might not depends on how close you get to it. But this could be a whole class of type of small drone like UFO. Yeah. It's like all the stuff that came down the street in close encounters. They were not the mothership, you know, and they didn't necessarily <laughs> yeah, the have red anything dot, in them.
0: Yeah. People in the theater loved the bright red dot. Yeah, that was around. the favorite. It was like the sports car model. Yeah. 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 A- exactly, and that's why we thought it was important to mention the Suonenjoki incident from Finland. Similar looking shaped craft, not exactly the same, but that one also hit a tree and seemed to get knocked down to the uh, to the ground at the time and also exhibited some sense that someone else was there. It had sensing capabilities. It wasn't just randomly flying around. So these often aren't the most famous stories, but they do occur and they have been occurring, you know, again, you can go probably go back centuries to the dawn of time yes. when these things oh, have nice. been happening, but uh, people didn't really make note of it. They were just kind of kept to themselves. And it's only been in the last, uh, last, uh, half of the 20th century, and into the 21st century where now these things are being documented and and now it's beginning to be okay, socially acceptable to talk about them.
2: Right. And there's some things to point out about the Gorman dogfight. It's a fascinating case. You can look it up on Wikipedia if you want to get a quick cursory overview of it. There's a lot written on it in a lot of places And I will say, and as we've said before, Wikipedia leans towards a skeptical. Most of the entries are written by people with a skeptical viewpoint. One of the things that I believe it was the Air Force had come to conclusion of, and this was in the Wikipedia entry, regardless of who wrote it, if this is the Air Force's conclusion, it is what it is, was that they came out and said it was a weather balloon, which is, of course, the (laughs) the swamp gas. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They said later that they were able to determine that a weather balloon had been launched about 10 minutes earlier. It was of a particular design. That went up and that this is what Captain Gorman saw. But I don't know of of any material, at least off the top of my head, where he was asked how he felt about that and his inability to recognize it. That Theoretically, it was new technology then, but it's also an easy story to release later. Mm -hmm. And that gets to that whole thing about pilots not knowing what they're seeing or being implied that they don't know what they see, which that irks me when I think about that, especially when it comes to the whole Tic Tac story. But. Anyway, that's just something to think about. The Gorman dogfight actually goes hand in hand with Thomas Mantell's story, too. And if you haven't read that one, that may be a possible future episode for us, a one-off at some point. It's a great story. I've been
0: wanting to do it. It's, it's a, got a tragic end, but I think one that's misunderstood. Uh, and I, it's pretty well documented, so I would love to cover that at some point.
2: Let's talk about the possibility of it maybe being a drone from Earth. It could have been some kind of military technology or something, and this is... Wait a this, second. Wait a second. Yeah. Middle Earth? It, I didn't know. I didn't say that. I do subterranean earth. Okay. i I will get to some ideas about okay. that in my conclusions. Right. But okay, um, fine. I think that there is this possibility that maybe it was some military device that we weren't aware of. Uh, however, there was no time during the story that the boys described anything uh, during their examination of it that could be identified as a propulsion system. So it remains unclear if the story is true. What kind of technology might have been present within the Kira object that would have allowed it to fly the way it did and maneuver the way it did, or whether such technology would have even existed in 1972? And coming back to something we already said, I do think it's interesting, the similarity in the description of the holes on the bottom and the pattern in the Falcon Lake incident that was on his shirt although there's a significant size difference there. But the patterns are identical, not necessarily identical. And that's a question I have for you, Forrest, because I've seen the artist rendering, and then you see the pictures of the object that they built for the Japanese documentary or all these retellings of the story. One of them has that opening on the bottom of the Kira object being a square. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the circles that are in the pattern of the square are flush up against the edges. Yeah, But then there's another one where the circles are not in a square and they more radiate like a really simplistic kind of sun image. That's the speaker pattern. Yeah. I call that the speaker pattern. So which yeah, one was holes. on it? I'm not super clear on that. And here's where I tend
0: to favor looking at is that we don't know, but there were holes. <laughs> there yeah, were there were holes. <laughs> holes of some <laughs> kind. And also, not just randomly, like some kid who <laughs> took a big pen and he's punching holes to preserve his butterfly in a jar – it's holes that were in an industrial design pattern of some kind. And so when you look at Falcon Lake, well, you know exactly what that pattern is because Stefan had those burned into his skin, into his chest. Yeah. And uh, as I think I said earlier, there were uh, four across, five rows deep, so about 20 holes and turned into really painful red uh, blisters and welts on his body. So you know exactly what that exhaust looked like from the craft, if you are to believe him and that he just didn't scorch himself for a good story. Yeah. And it made him sick for a very long time afterwards and that there were indicators of radioactive residue from that.
2: That one that's another good story and the Shag Harbor incident I digress. Let's well so what about mm. the other possibility? What <laughs> if it's a being a piloted craft? This is one of my favorite mm-hmm. and this is <laughs> this is where Rob Morphy yeah. from Cryptonaut podcast comes in. His cuz he's the one that wrote that entry that is probably the most popular English speaking version of the story. Yeah, He had speculated maybe it was piloted by a tiny little pilot. And uh, he suggested (laughs) also that the strange liquid or gooey substance that they observed inside the craft might have been the remains of the pilot after it had been damaged during its encounters. I mean, God only knows they're banging it with a hammer, dumping three (laughs) pints of water in it, whatever, and the little guy turned to goo. Maybe. Yeah, the Wicked Witch theory. Or maybe he was goo originally. You never know. I mean, we can't dictate, you know, he could have arrived as goo. Exactly.
0: That's my earlier theory. I will name the tiny René Auberjonois Auberjonois theory. That he was, it's a liquid being. Or the goo is somehow, uh, maybe you scared him so bad, that's what came out of the invisible being. Well, there you go.
2: Maybe that's what was left behind when he beamed
0: out. Here you go, boys. Thanks for nothing. And, uh. Had to make an exit, but uh, yeah, scared the goo out of him. But that is probably, to my mind, again, going by the more uh, earthly industrial logic here, and that it's probably something to do with the functioning of the aircraft, like some kind of lubricant liquid or grease or something that it needed, or it was a conductive material. Or this is what I call my fourth theory here, the cut open stretch Armstrong toy theory.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm
0: not sure yes. he's being made anymore. I think he's yeah. around, uh, probably some vintage toy stores. It was this uh, really incredible toy. It was a like a He-Man-shaped kind of character. And somehow, out of the miraculous materials he was made out of, you could pull the arms and it would stretch a long ways. And then I think I had some friends that had a really banged-up dirty one, and they finally cut it open. And if I remember correctly, it was this purplish, weird goo.
2: yeah. They yeah. came
0: in like, and we were just like, whoa, what is that? And, and I don't think it smelled very good or no. had kind of a petroleum smell or something. Do not consume. Yeah, it's just better not to do that.
2: Well, what's interesting about this whole tiny alien thing, and this is something I've been, couldn't wait to jump down into just for a little side rabbit hole here, not a crazy one. And it's about sightings of Malaysian micro aliens in the 70s. So I want to read this publication that was uh, made by a UFO researcher from Malaysia, and I might not be pronouncing his name correctly, but I think it's Ahmad Jamaluddin. I'm not sure how you do the Hmm. last name, but he's well known in the UFO community for writing, quote, a summary of unidentified flying objects and related events in Malaysia from 1950 to 1980. And we have a link to where we got this information from. This is from a website that we've referred to many times before. It's a great website. It's called abovetopsecret.com. There's a lot of great forums there and information. In this article, you can find these cases in Malaysia, and there's seven of them. You can find them in other places on the internet too, but I'm taking them, they've cut and pasted them in here from that report that Jamaluddin did. So Ahmad is uh, famous for having written in the UFO community for having written a document called A Summary of Unidentified Flying Objects and Related Events in Malaysia from 1950 to 1980. And this was published by the KUFOS, the Center for UFO Studies, in 1981. It also says this is again an above top secret. He is largely responsible for the first Malaysian UFO conference, which was held in Kuala Lumpur in December of 1995. So I just want to read a couple of these cases. They're 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 pretty interesting. Case number one, uh, Johor Bahru, 1970. Four boys going to school one morning saw a small UFO and tiny six inch tall creatures. The boys soon reported it to the headmaster, and since it occurred in the school premises. The news broke out, and soon the whole school were combing the area looking for the creatures. One small burnt patch on the ground was found. The UFO was gone. Case number two, Gombang near Kuantan. Pardon my pronunciations, 1973. Two schoolboys claimed to have seen tiny humanoids only three inches tall in the school compound. It is said that one of the creatures was actually caught by the boys, which attracted the attention of a teacher. He arrived in time to see it before the tiny creature finally managed to escape. Case number three. Bukit Murtajam, 1973. A group of boys playing football on a school field sighted a small UFO landed nearby. From it emerged tiny creatures, which immediately one of the boys tried to catch. A beam of light was fired Mm -hmm. at the boy's hand. The UFO flew away. Case number four. This is actually missing from the Above Top Secret posting, but we found this in another location, another great website called ufoevidence.org. We have both links in our show notes. Case number four. Ipo, or Ipo, I-P-O-H, 1973, a small UFO carrying tiny humanoids landed in a school field. Several schoolboys who sighted it excitedly called their teachers. They came just too late to see the object speeding away. Mm. Case 5, Miri Sarawak, 1973. I'm pretty sure these are locations, not people's names. Several (laughs) boys saw a humanoid about six inches tall wearing a white suit, cutting a fence wire with an intense beam of light. They tried to catch it, but it was lost in the bushes. No UFO was sighted. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so that one's like, I guess he didn't have fence clippers. He had a laser. Come on, man. Case 6, Miri Sarawak, 1973, or Sarawak. And this is the same location as the last one. Several people on vacation along the beach sighted a group of tiny beings wearing white suits. There Uh were about six or seven of them. They wore no mask and resembled humans except for their tiny size. This group consisted of possibly males and females. The females were notable because of the long hair. An attempt to catch them failed. No saucer was sighted. Case seven. A small UFO landed on a field near some boys. A boy tried to catch a three-inch creature that emerged from it. It fired a beam that temporarily paralyzed his right arm. The UFO then flew away. Also, that was
0: from Bukit Murtajum.
2: Yes, that's a repeated location.
0: The earlier one being 1973 as and case number three. Yeah.
2: Yes, and there's an analysis here, and I, I believe that this is in Ahmad's words himself. It says... There were not less than seven reported landings in Malaysia from the first known landing in 1970 through May 1979. This exactly coincides with our sighting in Japan, by the way. From these reports, there were five cases of close encounter with tiny humanoids and two other cases reported from East Malaysia, but no UFO was sighted. The creatures measured in all cases either three inches or six inches tall. All were equipped with a type of ray gun. One of my favorite words. They were Mm. described as well-dressed in one-piece suits. Some had slightly larger head and round eyes. The three-inch humanoids sometimes had two antenna-like structures protruding from the head.
0: Okay, so it was Kazoo. It was, it was kazoo. kazoo. It from was Kazoo. The Flintstones
2: yeah. keeps making reference to Kazoo. A lot of people probably have no idea who that is. He was a little green alien in the Flintstones. I, <laughs> God only knows why they brought him in on the Flintstones. That's when the Flintstones jumped the shark. They jumped the Kazoo. Do you stop using? I hate that phrase. <laughs> I know, Stop I using hate it, too. That, please. But they did. That's the equivalent. It's the cute little alien. We can't. We've run out of ideas. It's a cute little
0: alien. Well, on its on a family sitcom, it's when they bring in the wacky brother in
2: law. Yeah, exactly.
0: But do you know who voiced Kazoo? I do not. It's somebody famous. Hold on. Uh, we
2: well, if you up. don't know, you shouldn't have asked. While you're looking it up, <laughs> cases one, two, three, four, and 7 occurred in West Malaysia, all reported by school children, and all landings took place in school premises. And that's something we talked about before. We have this whole article. You should read the rest of it. It's got a lot of other comparisons between the different cases, but... Um, This goes back to when we covered the Welsh UFO flap that took place at the Berwyn School, and that's a really fascinating episode if you're into this kind of stuff. And also we mentioned the aerial incident in Zimbabwe, which, believe it or not, someone has just contacted us and says that a relative is a eyewitness to that, and we are setting up an interview. So uh, we wanted to cover it anyway, but you always want to cover it more when you have an eyewitness. Uh, So who was the voice of Kazoo? Well, first of all –
0: it may have sounded like I said kazoo, but I meant to say the great gazoo. Gazoo. With a G. Yes. Gazoo, Ga- gazoo. The great gazoo. Yes. I haven't seen it in like 30 years. So I think you may have misheard me and you also said kazoo. I just want to point it out that to Fred Flintstone aficionados.
2: Is that a thing? I don't know.
0: I said the great gazoo. The voice
2: was, get this, the great Harvey Corman. Oh, well, that's impressive. Well, again, somebody that people don't know. Right. Uh, Unless you're <laughs> oh, old come enough on now. To, yeah, well if you're old enough to remember the Carol Burnett show, then you know who Harvey Corman was. But
0: yeah, Blazing yeah. Saddles. Come on, j- yeah. check into this people. You're really going to enjoy it. Plus yeah. you need you need you need stuff to watch. Uh, the point here I'm bringing this up is that yes, he had a a he had a very large alien-like head. He was green, had gloves, had a belt with a triangle on it, which is quite prescient because that's been reported in real cases of high strangeness, extraterrestrials wearing strange belts with geometric designs on them. He had boots and a cape. Well, he was miniature, probably, uh, you know, eight inches tall in relation to Fred or, or smaller, but he had antenna on the helmet because that's the 1950s and sixty sci-fi idea that he needs some kind of electronics to transmit into his brain, but the bigger point here was that he was also interdimensional in a way; he could appear and disappear.
2: I'm not entirely positive why we're going down this road about a fictional character <laughs> on a cartoon, but <laughs> because uh, it was if he makes uh, you feel uh, so, better. Yeah. Well, look, <laughs> you brought up ante-
0: antenna on the heads, which well, was that, a that, real that's report. From actual sightings. The point here, the connection I will make is that there are strange not entirely intentional in my view, connections between real life sightings that are genuine or partly genuine or partly misconstrued or misidentified and pop culture. And that was one of the points we made here in Micah's outline is that there are elements of Japanese folklore and pop culture, especially around 1972. So I'll round this all about in, in my final conclusions here that one affects the other in a way that we don't understand. But that's the only thing that we can do. I don't know if these reports are true. Really, none of us do except for the eyewitness. But what we can do is make connections to other events and see if there are any meaningful patterns. And for me, this one is a meaningful pattern with the Flintstones.
2: So it comes back around to this idea that there might've been some tiny alien inside this thing, because in the seventies is a very same decade. And granted it's all the way over in Malaysia, but there are repeated sightings going on in schoolyards, no less, with kids. Uh, there's a lot in common there, although mm-hmm. Michio and his friends, uh, or Seo and his friends, I should say, uh, out of respect, they never saw any being of any kind other than like the goo, which of course they never said they thought was a being. <laughs> no. Rob, Rob Morphy said that might have been a being, no. which is hilarious. But um, that points to the idea of it possibly being a piloted craft. But uh, what about AI? What about artificial intelligence?
0: Yep. That's another big theory here that it's some form of AI and tying that into your last thing about being piloted, perhaps it's a nuts and bolts type craft. That's another big argument too: nuts and bolts craft versus technology. Let's say that's so far ahead of us that it blends almost into a ethereal spirit-like form. That was my tick nac thing of like, uh, yeah, you're not going to tear this thing apart and actually find wires and bolts because that's so 20th century earth. That's yeah. so 19th century steampunk in a way compared to what they're doing. But it could be a blend of all these things, as you said earlier, something that's low tech, low fi being employed by a higher intelligence that's not from this dimension getting way
2: out there, but that's what we do. Well, yeah. How, how about this? What if no matter where you're from, time, space, and dimension, whatever you send here has to be made of materials available in the present day here? Or what if you're doing I that on a that. cover?
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I love that. So think about this. This artificial intelligence piloting this craft, perhaps, is something you can't see that's actually maybe inside the little bell-shaped ashtray but it's actually a form of a pilot that's more of a thought form, but it's actually using mechanical means, nuts and bolts and transistor wires and uh, and Sony guts to make this thing fly. But it's actually a force that's a, more of a psychic force flying this thing,
2: as opposed to a little three-inch tall being wearing a white suit. Oh, yeah. What if it's like the Terminator? It, the, the alien has to get here naked, and then right. he has to, whatever he yeah. needs, he's going to have to build from whatever's available in this time and place.
0: Exactly. So, all right. So here's the second branch of the AI argument. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, ashtray, just an interdimensional Like uh, E.T. could have made an ashtray fly,
2: I'm pretty sure. I mean, he used to speak spell to talk to another planet, so, you know.
0: Again, you don't know what's going on in these alternate universe cultures. Maybe their smoking restrictions are so severe they have to go to another dimension to smoke a a butt. (laughs) Just get out, not 20 feet away from the building, go to another dimension. You're so offensive nowadays. So this other branch, though, about artificial intelligence of course, goes to the craft itself being something sentient. So the theories about a sentient, artificially intelligent mechanism of some kind have also been, of course, proposed as some solution or explanation for this case. So this interpretation of the case, though, was very likely influenced by the 1987 film Batteries Not Included, which we mentioned, uh, I think, in part one, right? Yes. I can't remember. Yes, we did. Where the days have just flowed into months and weeks. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what that Uh, is right now. But of course, yeah, if you're around, that's a cute little film of the 80s variety genre here, which involved an almost strikingly similar, though, story of smallish, mechanical alien life forms coming to earth and befriending a group of tenants in an apartment complex. Yes. I can't remember why they would want to do that, but here's a machine being that has intelligence, which is also, uh, one of the ideas I loved about actually the movie AI from Steven Spielberg. Man, he's just got the finger on the pulse of all these great ideas. Yes, he, he does. yes. Turns into them a fantastic movies. They're all so enjoyable in their own way, uh, but that eventually there could be an evolution of intelligent, sentient robots in a way. Maybe they don't have a soul and you, you shouldn't make fun of them for that, but they are sentient Far greater intelligence than we could ever be because they are computers, but they are a race of sorts. Well, here's the little IMDB explanation of this film. Quote, a group of tenants in an apartment block are being forced to move out so that it can be demolished. The tenants are reluctant to move, of course. So the developers hire a local gang to, quote, inside the quotes here, persuade them to leave. Fortunately, visiting alien mechanical life forms come to town. When they befriend the tenants, the
2: aliens use their extraterrestrial abilities to defeat the developers. All right, just whenever you're trying to work up a pitch to sell something in Hollywood, remember somebody pitched this and it got bought.
0: (laughs) A quick dumb aside, I learned this in film school. The quickest and fastest selling elevator pitch, Schwarzenegger, DeVito, they're twins. <laughs> that's all we that's need it. to hear. Done, Green light. that's it. Green light. Yeah, just make it. I don't yeah. care what has to happen, how much money we spend, how long it takes. Make this happen. And uh, <laughs> well, there you go. You can see what happened from that. I also thought about this when we first heard about this story. And maybe connected in a way also to my thinking about the Bet Sphere is that, does this thing have its own intelligence? Because when you go back to the Bet Sphere, it seemed to respond maybe in a way that was beyond just simple stimulus and response or stimulus and reaction. That was it trying to communicate with Terry Betts when he was playing the guitar, or does it just do that with certain harmonic frequencies? The aspect here, if this thing is not piloted or controlled by another intelligence force outside of it, if this thing is kind of sentient, the Kira object I'm now getting back to, it seemed to be playing with the boys in a way. There's a playful exchange there of cat and mouse, as I said earlier. It's allowing itself to be captured, perhaps, maybe because it's malfunctioning. Maybe it allows itself to be captured because it wants to study what these uh, smaller humanoids are doing. And again, we're we're just coming out of our, our rears here about <laughs> theories and ideas that we have no uh, idea about. But we're just kind of extending this thinking in that... What is its purpose? Is it in the field to attract attention, flying erratically, and then it gets some attention and it draws uh, humans and it wants to study them? But it's also kind of defending itself. It's shooting beams of light. It it scares
2: them away, but it lets them also approach. You know what I call this? Attract a mode. You know what attract mode is? Yeah, it sounds kind of familiar. I used to have a stand up arcade, like a real cabinet of my yeah. favorite, one of my favorite games, which I think I mentioned this when we were doing Polybius Tempest. Right. Yeah, and yeah. So, you know, once you have one of these games, and you're you're you have to get versed in uh, opening up the back and changing the little switches on it to get it to do different things. Right. How much? How many quarters does it take? All that kind of stuff. And there's one set of configuration which you call attract mode, and that's where it's just doing all kinds of stuff up on the screen to try to get oh, you to come att- over to it and put a quarter. Yes. In it. You know, and yeah. that technology Tempest uh, was only a few years later that it it came out for right. cabinet. So. Yeah maybe whatever it was, was in attract mode to try to get the kids in, to draw them in. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: That's what I said earlier is that you can get into trouble or just uh, not very fruitful discussions or, or pointless discussions trying to wonder what makes sense to us as far as a mission goes. What's this thing trying to do? Well, clearly, if you start diving into abduction stories and abduction theory, people are being abducted to be studied and manipulated in some way. Why do they care? Well, they have their reasons. If this thing's a drone of either organic or artificial intelligence, what's its purpose? Why is it here? Is it doing the thing it's supposed to be doing? And is part of that enticing these kids to have some kind of interaction relationship over a long period of time? This is almost a month now, right? Since the uh, end of August into late September. Yeah. Or it's just all a hoax, and that explains a lot of it, which
2: gets to our next theory. I've been joking about this from the start, but there are some aspects of this case that suggest the possibility of a hoax. And uh, (laughs) the leading theory supporting the rationale for a hoax, which has been expressed on some Japanese language blogs and comment forums, uh, particularly by an anonymous user operating under the moniker Angel Pass. Is that claims of sightings of unusual phenomena on the property in question would have lowered its value, granting any potential buyer, (laughs) uh, especially one who was complicit with the hoax, an opportunity to purchase the nearby property at a reduced rate.
0: Okay, one second here. Are you Scooby thinking Doo what episode? I'm thinking? <laughs> this is a Scooby-Doo yeah, <laughs> yeah. theory. Yeah, theory. This so is a Scooby-Doo Doo theory. theory.
2: Yeah. But this theory is complicated because there was already an existing urban legend about Coppa-like demons that haunted the area. We told you about right. them. They want to come out and uh, sumo wrestle you all night.
0: Well, the problem with that, rarely am I dressed for it in public. <laughs> oh, my God.
2: Yeah. Well, in light of this, it seems less likely that claims of UFO sightings on the property Would have necessarily reduced the value any more than it already was for being in proximity to that. So, and that's a local legend. So, Mm -hmm. Mia, the author of the article at the Japanese uh, UFO case. Files blog, which we have a link to, noted of the incident that, quote, because it is a famous case, until recently, various materials have been provided through books, television, and reports from research organizations. However, if you sort them in chronological order, there are many small differences, and it is my impression that one does not know which information you can trust, end quote. Well, I'll go with that. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, we've sort of been talking about that ourselves. Mm-hmm. Micah pointed out actually, when he was doing research on this, he said this issue became evident to me early on as well, with the conflicting narratives that began to appear from one account to the next. Although I initially chalked this up to issues pertaining to translation and language barriers, Mia seems to suggest that Japanese language sources have indicated the same problem. That's another one that mm-hmm. maybe puts you tilts you over your needle over to the hoax category again. Yeah, now, here are a few of the problems with the story that might warrant some skepticism. Firstly, there's only one photograph. there's one picture. Right. All the pictures that you see online everywhere, even from all the people that are recopying Rob's original blog post everywhere, most of those pictures are ones that were from the recreation done for Japanese television. And in some cases, the real photo was not even in the article. Because when you look at it, it's a blurry light in a blurry rice paddy. So, and you couldn't tell any of that unless somebody told you. So the Japanese UFO Case Files blog notes that the boys did manage to photograph what they had claimed had been the UFO in the rice field, which is the picture I was just talking about. However, quote, there was no other picture except this unclear one, end quote. It's also suspicious that in other instances where pictures of the object were allegedly taken, the images were either badly out of focus or the camera didn't appear to operate correctly.
0: Blurry photos again.
2: Yep, there you go. Blurry photos. Now, UFO Case Files also noted that according to an interview by Nishimoto, whether this was the name of one of the children or the interviewer's name is unclear. uh, He described later he was familiar with his father's single lens reflex camera and forgot to insert the film because of his help and failed to shoot. So, mm-hmm. uh, keeping in mind we have all kinds of translation issues going on here, but sure. you know didn't know how to work the camera. The other thing that we can say, and I'm not yeah. trying to argue against the skeptical viewpoint because I do right. think it holds water, much like the hat did, three pints of it. But the <laughs> well, the other yeah. the other thing right. about this is that devices involved in paranormal cases can go into a state of failure. Now, if, usually, but if, yeah, yeah, but if the camera is. A mechanical object, I think that would be less likely than if it was an electronic object, and in this case, the camera probably was a simple mechanical object, so I wouldn't necessarily say that was a factor here because I don't think electronic cameras would have been available to these kids uh In fact, I saw the camera model somewhere, and I'm pretty sure that it definitely did not have any electronics in it. So
0: it's a lot harder to use, or it can be if it's a single lens reflex 35 millimeter camera. I think the, the fun comes with you, you don't explain anything. So they had to figure out how to uh, open the back and thread the film and advance it a little yeah. to, and then uh, yeah. hit the shutter. So there's a little bit to that if you don't know anything about it. Also back be sure then, you do
2: that in the dark or make sure the camera's closed when you're doing it.
0: So there's two sides of that argument as, as far as like not knowing what the, you know, how, how the camera works is that, I could see it being likely that these kids would be somewhat familiar with it, but maybe not get it loaded correctly. Like if you don't thread it all the way and there's a little notch that grabs one of the sprocket holes in the film, you close the back and you try to advance it with the, uh, with the winder and you click the shutter, like it won't grab the film. It won't start to spool up. Yeah. And if you didn't know that there's a lot of things that could go wrong that have happened to me as a kid about that age, trying to figure that camera out. I'll say this. Boy, in these really intense and especially interactive cases like this one, there's so many weird things that happen, I believe, from people that I've heard uh, that I I believe are credible and friends of mine, short, intense bursts of, of really weird, high strangeness, that seemingly logical or easy things that should have happened just didn't. All logic and function goes out the window. Anything can happen or not happen.
2: All right, now we come to one of my favorite theories. Not necessarily because I favor it, but just because of the comedic value of it. And that's the (laughs) ashtray theory. There are photographs appearing online that appear to show an ashtray that closely resembles the description of the Kira object. Um, In Mm -hmm. fact, you can find those at UFO Casebook blog. We have the link. Now, the notion that the boys might have gotten such an ashtray produced at a local foundry, which there were foundries around, and perhaps decorated or modified it, could explain why Mr. Fujimoto, when his son showed him the object, had been largely unimpressed with it and even compared it to an ashtray. Mm-hmm. My issue with this, and I see this too, and it's, it goes a lot to some of the stuff that Micah uncovered and just all the origins of the story and even Rob Morphy, is, is that going way back, there's a lot of information that points to details that seem to come from the recreation that was made later, which they did probably use an ashtray or build something that looked like an ashtray. Mm -hmm. And so then that muddied the water of the original story. And I was looking up and I wound up deciding not to include it in the outline here, but I was looking up the whole thing about eyewitness testimony and misinformation. And there's all these theories. About how eyewitness testimony can be tainted, which is something that we've talked about before on the show. And of course, we only use it when it tilts in our favor, the paranormal favor, but it works both ways. And (laughs) so one of the possibilities, though, is, and this is a proven thing, and I'll put links in the show notes, I don't want to get super deep on it here in the episode, but... If the boys are all telling the story over and over and then they're doing the recreation and the idea that it was described as an ashtray works its way into the story, and in fact it originally was some otherworldly object and that's the closest thing you can compare it to, then – that becomes the word that you're going to keep going back to because you that's how you're easily able to describe it to somebody who's never seen something like this before. And if it was something that you, I mean, you're going to use terms and ideas that are familiar not only to you from a cultural standpoint, but to the people that you're telling the story to. So it it occurs to me that if you take all of the recreations that are going on and you get the one description of it looking like an ashtray and that gets in the mix and then the boys are telling the stories over and over and over then it becomes an ashtray. It became an ashtray. And what I see on the internet a lot are pictures of ashtrays. And you know what they are? They're perfect matches for the thing they built for the recreation. And of course they are, because that probably was an ashtray. That's my point. So they're like, see, it was an ashtray. And it's like, you're comparing it to what they used in the documentary. You're not comparing it to what the boys actually saw.
0: So, well, that's a really good point. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up because uh, I, I was thinking that and and didn't uh, have it uh, uh, as wordily, as uh, deftly as you did there. But uh, let me ask you this. This bleeds into the Derenberger angle. Yeah. If you believe Woody Derenberger's story, that's connected to Mothman of Point Pleasant, that he had an encounter with a being called Indrid Cold. I, I can't remember at this particular moment here. I believe some people have pointed out that John Keel believed that Darren Berger himself was a, a bit of a tall tale teller. Yeah. A pathological one. And was probably not to be trusted. But you could see his daughter on Hellier Part 2 of the series. And take that for what you will. She tends to believe her father's narrative and has her own, apparently. So... Is this something, though, this object, a blend of something weird happening and then something, a psychic attachment to something the boys are familiar with and can understand? Woody Derenberger described Indrid Cold's craft as something like a lantern chimney with a squeaky, rusty car door. Like, you, you know, is, do you think an advanced race of beings would have something that clunky? Or was it something that Woody can understand? And it just, that's what appeared in his mind because the rest of it was blown. Choose a form. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like, uh, uh, <laughs> ashtray. Oh, man. Well, that's thats the only thing I, I can think of. But yeah, there were foundries around which also, that's an, another uh, explanation that it was a hoax perpetrated on the boys by somebody hucking this used ashtray out the window into a rice paddy. And uh, from there, they imagined all the stuff happening or decided it would be a good object for a hoax and concocted this story to gain attention. But when you look at it, yeah, you're right. From the descriptions and the photos, even the the Japanese style design on the bottom with the birds and the waves or clouds is pretty identical to one being found. Now these are antique Japanese ashtrays from the Edo period, but still being used, as my friend John said, a lot of times you'd see them in fancy restaurants or, or a, a nice corporate office, and it comes in a set box, upside down, with a little drawer for cigarettes.
2: Yeah, and we have uh, pictures of that as well. Rob had those on his blog post, I think, I, or Micah dug some up somewhere, and we'll we'll be sharing links to that. But the other thing about that is they are describing it a certain way, and then it becomes the ashtray, is what it seems like to me. And so yeah. then. There is a sketch of the object, but I don't know what the timetable is for that sketch being made. Again, that could have been made a few years ago. Like in Hopkinsville, we have this sketch that came out contemporaneously with the event. And that's what's really interesting about that. In this case, you're getting sketches made later, way after the fact, possibly part of a a recreation. The story's been told a billion times. It could have been made by anyone. It's all over the internet. And so now we have this ashtray that looks just like the sketch, but what was the origin of the sketch? It's a little... Dicey. So then, when you say, mm-hmm. "Oh well," on the bottom it had this, that, and the other. But then again, if you go back to my idea, which I pulled out of whole cloth, that, that you're just <laughs> gonna that they have to make it from available parts. You know, ET comes right. down here. It's like short circuit when he builds the uh, the extra robot because he knows how to make it out of the parts that he can find. Or Bill and yeah, Ted, the Bill and Ted sequel, where they make the yeah. robot Bill and evil robot Bill and Ted station has to use what he can find or whatever that. Well, there you go. The big bud. ET. E. Yeah. ET's yeah, yeah. e. got a speak and spell and a saw blade. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the sociology of this event. Researcher Kenichi Nishimoto had made some interesting observations about the case after reading about it in a short publication on mysteries that had been sold in Kochi convenience stores for a time that outlined the case. Nishimoto found and interviewed some of the boys who witnessed the event at the time, and although he leans towards the hoax interpretation, he gives interesting reasons for it. Based on his interviews and his research, Nishimoto noted that the Kira UFO affair could have been influenced by social conditions in Kochi at the time. Japan in the early 70s was beginning to experience an economic downturn, primarily resulting from the, quote, Nixon shock. That's a series of economic decisions enacted by President Nixon beginning in 1971, and that was followed in 1973 by the oil shock where Arabic oil producers announced an embargo that was affecting the global economy. So, aided by rising income disparity, this is seen by some as part of a worsening social condition in Kochi at the time that might have influenced the boys to create the imaginary series of events. The primary factors, Nishimoto cited, were quote, rapid population growth caused by the influx of people and the regional disparity caused by the merger with Kochi City and the desires of local children who were not very wealthy. End quote. Youthful nostalgia for the good times might not seem like the kind of thing that would become the driving force behind a story that later became recognized as one of Japan's most famous and controversial alleged UFO incidents. However, one way this could be interpreted might be that the incident grew out of a scenario almost akin to a role-playing game, where the events, though imaginary, became actualized in real life by the boys, or at least some of them. A hoax being perpetrated by all the boys in question certainly may not have been required, and in fact, it's plausible that many of them could have actually believed the events in question were true— having been deceived by one of more of their friends as conspirators. And what's interesting about this is this is something that we touched on when we were looking at the explanations for the Patterson-Gimlin film. We, you know, What if just Roger Patterson was in on it and Bob wasn't? It's something that comes up in a lot of these cases where the hoax idea is entertained. How many people knew about it? Because in addition to... The public at large being hoaxed by it, is it possible that some people in the inner circle were hoaxed by it as well? Which, honestly, I'm going to say, if you're going to perpetrate a hoax, the best way to go is to have the least number of people know that it's a hoax, because the more people you have, the harder it is to keep a secret.
0: Right. I, I think that's more viable in this case because of the age of the boys. They're, they're you know, around 13. They're in junior high and of active imaginations. I, I totally do not buy that for the PGF. Because those are adults who are all familiar with the outdoors. And to pull one over on Bob Gimlin like that, it's one pretty dangerous. And I think he would have spotted it. And uh, if you had a, a Bob Hieronymus out there walking around, it's just much less likely because now you're talking about Bob Gimlin being fooled and then being an unwitting testifier to the event. Here, yeah, it's more possible. But then if you believe the accounts, the narrative that at some point they all witnessed this weird behavior. Then you really have to kind of parse down and who let it out of the bag, literally, or who who was holding the bag when it had escaped? Did he, like I said earlier, did he just ditch it into a field maybe to end the hoax or try to have the thing for himself later? Or, you know, who did that? And you're not going to find that out at this date, I don't think. Uh, You'd have to round everybody up and get testimony. And it was so long ago, uh, they probably
2: won't remember. You know, what just occurred to me right now as you're talking about that is that, a lot of times when a story blows up like this, the people that have been involved in it or that have the story, I think that they disappear, the object. And so let's point to this. The right. Betts' fear, the Betts' family knows where it is. Right. James Dean's car, little bastard, seems a lot like it was disappeared out of respect for Mr. Dean Right. by Mr. Barris at the behest of his family. It's speculation, but it makes sense. This story it's out of control. it's going crazy. How do you make it go away? You say it disappeared. What are the chances this little thing functioning or not, is still laying around in somebody's house or buried in a box in the in the yard or something like that do you know that that's probably a possibility when you think about it? It could be that they just said we I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. This is getting out of control. Mm-hmm. We need to make this go away. How do we do that? We say it flew away? Right. Just an idea, just an idea
0: but it kept coming back. I mean that is part of Then maybe they had that idea at the beginning because, to their narrative account, it kept disappearing. Yeah. Did you ever count up the amount of times? I think it's three or four because the one uh, documentary said, like, oh, it's five or six times. Yeah. I think it was that many, but
2: it's a little murky because of all the. Yeah, it's a little murky, but I would say between
0: at least two or three times, this thing disappears from their possession. So that's what I see about this. Like, it's a very clever, it's better than a couple of yokels producing a Bigfoot. Costume with some cow guts on it in a cooler in yeah. their front yard, not casting aspersions on those two gentlemen, but you know, like that's not I much think it's okay to do that of a hoax. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> like, there's at least more involved in this one of uh, uh, details of the story, which I always say, like, well, if it's not true, it's good sci-fi. Yeah, and for what this is, it's not bad sci-fi. It's interesting. It, it involves some common UFO tropes some weird behavior that they, yeah, it's possible they could have made
2: this up, but if they did, uh, it's inventive, it's imaginative, it's creative. Well, Mia said, quote, it seems the social situation at the time is the key. He he wrote this at uh, UFO Casebook, and it is very interesting. I realize again that this UFO incident was inseparable from the circumstances in human society, end quote. In light of some of the sociological factors occurring at the time in Kochi City, as we just mentioned, the UFO case blog puts forward an interesting scenario that might both account for a possible hoax, but one which might have led to at least some of the participants becoming convinced that the story was true and hence maintaining their version even to today. Mia at the UFO Casebook suggests the following scenario. One, the UFO was actually a metal ashtray made at a local foundry. In this regard, the holes in the bottom of the craft would actually represent the top of the ashtray representing an area for discarding ash. Two, one or more of the boys conceived of the idea of staging the UFO capture and therefore managed to convince a number of their friends that what they had in their possession was an authentic miniature UFO. Three, as the story began to receive more attention, the children who had been deceived would have defended their belief that the events in question were true. At this point, those who were involved with the deception might have felt pressured to maintain the story, particularly as adults, outside parties, and the media became involved. When researchers like Sutomo Seki and Kazuo Hayashi became interested in the case and even sought to interview the primary witnesses, the deceived Boys did not seem to be lying because they actually were convinced of the truthfulness of their friend's story. That's one way to look at the hoax aspect of it, and we certainly have to entertain it as a possibility. I do believe that even when something is a hoax, when it starts to get really big like this, it gets really hard to back out of it. You really have to follow through and stay committed because the bigger it gets the more foolish you look and the more disappointment you can anticipate from society at large when you say <laughs> right this was a fib we were just kidding and now well you now everyone's <laughs> mad at you because they wanted all the people that wanted to believe and those of us that have invested yeah. hours and hours of research and talking your ear off about an ashtray um <laughs> Which I still think is
0: funny. Sometimes I, I go by gut feeling because that's all the data we have on them, other than what's been uh, reported in the news. And there are some cases, though, where I, I get an immediate reaction. And what reminded me here, it also involves two young boys of at least half Asian descent, as far as I could tell. And that's Balloon Boy. And when that first happened, man, it just did not sit right. There's something going on here, and uh, you could see the dad's reaction and how he behaved, and the more that came out about him, like, oh, yeah, he was on Wiveswap or some reality show, and he involved his young boys in the hoax. And the young boy, I I do believe, was so upset by having to go along with the hoax that on a morning talk show, was it the Today Show where they had the, uh, yeah. they had him on there? Like he got sick. He threw yeah. up on camera because I, I believe that like, I, dad is way off base with this and I don't want to do this anymore. And, and I, I don't want to be a part of this. And it it made him sick, but you could tell by the dad's actions that, okay, this is a guy who really does love that kind of limelight, no matter the cost. And his wife also just seemed to kind of go along with it. And he did all the talking. I didn't get the sense from these boys. But then again, we can't gather much because there's no media on them. Not really many interviews you can read about them or, or camera footage other than the Japanese documentary. And in that, as you'll see if you go check it out, they're just recreating what had happened for the film crew. And there's not enough of it to get a sense of who they are and their personalities. Because that also factors in. How likely is this that, that it would be a hoax?
2: Well, in May of 2016, a broadcast on the NHK Radio First broadcast recounted the events of the Kira incident, and one of the boys who had been part of the original capture of the object in 1972 appeared on the program, and he claimed to have been shown the craft and that he had actually helped apply silver paint to its exterior. During the radio program, he gave the following revealing statement, Noting the object appeared to be made of, quote, heavy casting that did not look very good, and I sprayed it with silver spray. At that time, I felt like I was being deceived, end quote. Mm. The program also featured an interview with photographer Kentoshi Sato, who runs a mysterious occult website called X.51, and he is the author of a book titled The Mysterious World. And Mr. Sato speculates that the incident was a hoax perpetrated by at least some of the boys, and that as the story grew and gained more attention, they felt they were unable to confess to it being a hoax, which is what I, we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. There's another report that astronomer Secchi received a confession some years later from one of the individuals that was involved at the time. Now, as to why this was not widely publicized, uh, Mia of the UFO Casebook blog notes that uh, perhaps the reason why the confession from the central person was not transmitted was that Mr. Secchi was an astronomer. There was not much coverage on UFOs in the media, and he did not talk unless he was asked, end quote. So the story of this confession, it comes from interviews by Kintoshi Sato who interviewed local people and some of those involved in the case, which included Tsutomo Seki. A colleague of Seki's at the time of the incident was a high school teacher, and one of the boys involved in the incident was one of his students. According to Seki, this boy, a, quote, central person involved with the incident, uh, not named, allegedly confessed when asked by his teacher, saying he had fabricated it. In light of this testimony from his teacher friend, Mr. Seki recognizes that the case has been resolved. However, Sadao Fujiwara, one of the boys who later became involved with the incident, was also interviewed for the radio broadcast, and he said, quote, if he said it was a fabrication, it's strange that it's not already been made public, end quote. Sato requested to speak to the individual believed to have been the boy that made the confession for the radio program, but the individual refused to speak on the record or give their name, apart from saying that the 1972 events in question were indeed true. So, a Secchi, who appeared on the NHK radio program, was quoted as saying, there are still many people interested in this subject, end quote, and noted in the days before the arrival of the internet, sharing information was more difficult, and although Seki had discussed this confession at times, it likely had not received as much attention as the more sensational aspects of the case, especially after the story was revived in the early 2000s. This alleged confession was several years after the incident, so even if some of the media covered it, it would not have been a big deal, the UFO casebook suggests. From the interviews with Mr. Nishimoto and Mr. Sato, as well as the testimony of Mr. Seki, the general conclusion is that the Kira UFO incident was a hoax. Well, there's one more development in the ashtray part of this story, and this involves Tatsuya Hanjo, a member of the Japanese paranormal group ASIOS, who decided to try and locate any ironware objects that might resemble the descriptions of the Kira object. While searching on a Yahoo auction, he did manage to locate an ashtray which possesses the same general shape as descriptions of the Kira UFO, as well as models that were based on the descriptions given by the boys, including the one depicted in the 1975 television segment devoted to the case. A good description of the object would be to liken it to an oval or egg-shaped vase with a flat saucer-shaped lid on top. We have pictures of it in our show notes. One or more holes appear in top, allowing cigarette ash to be dispensed into the vase, which rests on a flattened bottom. According to Hanjo, the disc-shaped portion of the ashtray could be removed and was reversible. On one side of this removable lid was a logo. This is somewhat reminiscent of the description of the patterns or images on the base of the Kira object. Now, according to Hanjo, the logo and other labeling was written to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the founding of Takeo Shinkin Bank. Hanjo believed that the ashtray was manufactured in 1959, although the labeling would appear to suggest it was made closer to Tokyo, which is a good distance away from Kochi, almost 10 hours by car. It's unclear... Why such an ashtray, if the boys had used a similar one, would have been in their possession in Kochi at the time. But Hanjo did not seem to entirely endorse the ashtray theory. This is important. There is evidence that the UFO flew and disappeared, he said, so the ashtray theory alone could not solve it. End quote. I did want to point out here that it could have been Harold Sakata. He played odd (laughs) job. (laughs) <laughs> and eight years prior to this incident, right. he had appeared in Goldfinger. He might have been out in the field practicing with his hat. Knocking the heads off of statues. Yeah, for for an odd job. You know, maybe he was doing a sequel or he was trying to get a, land a spinoff or something. Oh, dear. Well, this leads us to our conclusions and, <laughs> of this. Uh, this was mm. a fun series. I really enjoyed this. It was, a, it was a nice break from some of the darker stuff that we cover. Arguably, the language barriers make this pretty complicated for Western audiences, compared to other UFO investigations. Because it's really hard to discern some of the key details about this case without any really good translations or interpreters, each of which can become costly. And and we did talk to some folks about possibly translating a 10-minute video we found. And I think, Forrest, you said, the, a friend of yours said, there's really not much here. It's not worth it. It's not going to add a whole lot.
0: Right. So from what my friend John had said, and I, I believe he sent uh, that video clip to another friend of his who also, uh, probably a little more experience with translation of documents. Uh, And they, again, uh, my friend John teaches English, so it's an academic setting. He offered to translate sections of it if we thought it was important, but he said really overall, two things to note, because we will post these clips. Uh, If you do speak Japanese, you can listen to the clip yourself. But he said, uh, after reading Rob Morphy's great coverage on it and uh, uh, the two Japanese language blogs that we looked over a little bit, uh, that it didn't really offer a whole lot of uh, new information. And to keep this in mind and that what you're seeing in that clip is just the boys doing the recreation for the television crew, as we've been saying. And so nothing in there other than that one appearance of the blurry, bright object in a dark field really sheds any more useful light on the subject other than you get to see the boys and the locations there that they're talking about and the people involved. So that's always handy, I I find. It's worthwhile to get a sense because these are, again, human interest stories and how that affects us as humans at the end of it. But I think what you're seeing in the video itself is, yeah, there's no bombshells. There's no really pertinent information. The other clip, though, that is actually in English, Narrated by a Japanese speaking man who is trying to describe what he's seeing. He borrows shots from this TV documentary, but he's giving commentary that seems to be closely following Rob Morphy's article. <laughs> Rob, he's the
2: Ohio of this story. It all leads back to him. Yeah, we got a, I thought this was hilarious. It's pretty amazing. So it's footage from the documentary cut up and then a narrative by a man who's, uh, for whom Japanese is his first language. And the narrative, uh, we're pretty sure is taken directly from your post. So I I thought that was interesting that people in Japan are using your version of the story. So, which is great. So,
0: yeah, once again, a big thanks to my friend John uh, in, yes, John, uh, in thank Japan and in, in Kobe City. And just a couple of points he made about the materials we sent him, uh, the two Japanese blogs, the video clip and uh, Rob's article. And he looked into some other stuff that he found himself, uh, again, like the Finland case. I love that story. It's a lot more tangible in a way. And I just want to mention a couple of points that John made, I think, are that are worth mentioning here. The clips, again, are from the TV documentary, and it's not a word-for-word translation of what you're seeing in the original TV documentary narration. This Japanese yeah.
2: gentleman is just giving his own narration and again. It sounds like Rob's thing. Yeah. It's, put it's, over it's, the pictures from the documentary, and it's not see and say. The action of the right. documentary doesn't exactly match what he's saying, but it 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 is clearly shot locally.
0: Yes, and and the other thing worth noting is that Possibly some of the photographic stills are misrepresented from the enactment in the documentary, because I believe uh, he says the photos shot by the boys at the end, those aren't the photos shot by the boys. So again, the only real one is that real blurry one. For whatever reason, that's the only one being retained from this case. Now, there are two other things worth noting that John points out, that the negative of the photo, which appears at two minutes and 57 seconds in, was checked,
2: and it apparently had not been doctored. Right. I'm glad you pointed that out. I meant to, and I forgot.
0: Yeah. The, the other thing that John points out here is that the mother who was interviewed claimed she saw this object glowing inside her son's backpack. We, we mentioned that earlier. So that's an adult witness who probably wanted nothing to do with his hoax. Mom didn't want it in the fridge or the oven. And also she confirmed that it did disappear from the backpack later as far as yeah. she knew. So John says here, it wasn't just the youngsters who apparently saw some interaction with this thing. That's a good point. Yeah, and that also the dad, uh, you know, look, he's a pretty smart dude. They seem like firmly middle-class, decent folks. If he really just thought it was an asher, he'd be like, what, you kids knock it off. <laughs> it was just go back to eating your udon. So would the parents not recognize that for
2: what it was? and put a stop to that right there. Well, one of the things that Micah pointed out, which is pretty interesting, is that Sutomo Seki's involvement, because he was an astronomer, is of key significance. He was involved early on with the investigation, and, and then there were these later allegations of an unreported confession he received, which is underreported or altogether admitted in the English-language retellings of the case. Although Farish and Titler did mention Seki and his colleague in their 1974 article, their synopsis was short, and portions mentioning Seki only comprised a few sentences. Obviously, being local to Kochi City, Seki's involvement has been more prominently reported in local coverage of the incident. However, as noted at the Japanese UFO Casebook blog, even the fact that Seki had allegedly received a confession about the case was not widely reported until 2016. This just happened. So the conclusion that the Kira incident was a hoax was favored by Sutomo Seki, photographer Kintoshi Sato, and researcher Kenichi Nishimoto, although this is really no different from how skeptical interpretations of such cases are often favored here in the West. However, the idea that the case was a hoax is not unanimous among those who've investigated it, and despite the confession Seki and his colleague learned about, many of the witnesses maintain their story is true to this day. Tatsuya Hanjo of the ACOS, ASIOS paranormal group seemed to reserve judgment about the case, and despite having located the similarly shaped ashtray online, did not appear to believe that that accounted for all the details. Kazuyo Hayashi, who investigated the incident on behalf of Shinichiro Namiki, of the Japanese Space Phenomena Society also seemed to think the story was legitimate and even uncovered the similar story of Sachiko Oyama, who was nine years old at the time and said she had a similar experience just four years later in the same area. That's the girl who was about 20 miles away. So... In conclusion, like many UFO incidents, separating the truths and the fictional elements about a case like this can be difficult, and it seems to become much more complex as time passes. But the Kira UFO case is intriguing enough that it has earned cultural significance, and to a degree, that has kept researchers looking at it for more than half a century. And what I want to say here in my final assessment is, I was particularly... Taken with the idea that when they got this thing open, they thought they could see wires and radio equipment in it. I love that. I mean, art directors <laughs> everywhere, production <laughs> designers. Yeah. What is better than, I mean, Terry Gilliam got this a long time ago low fidelity future, high tech, low fidelity is cool. That's like, right. Yeah. Introduce yeah. this analog idea into it. And of course, I'm talking about entertainment there, the, you know, Brazil, the movie Brazil or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. One but of my favorites. the point is just that. This thing was doing things that were technologically impossible at the time, if you believe any of this at all. Yet mm-hmm. when they looked inside of it, it had technology that was only relevant to that time period or maybe just a little bit before or a little bit in the future, if based on the description they saw, aside from the goo, whatever that was, could have been. But again, it could have been waterlogged paper, a tiny dead alien or a tiny alien in his natural form. <laughs> And <laughs> whatever it was. Or his leavings. Or yeah. His or her leavings. But the thing uh, disappeared. And why did it disappear? Did it disappear because they were tired of telling the story? It was getting too big? Did it disappear because it legit disappeared? It flew out of the backpack? I mean, the one thing is if they tell that story about it going away the way it did, no one's going to be able to hunt for it. There's nowhere to even look. But additionally, the different ways that it disappeared and reacquired are fascinating too because it seemed to do some sort of interdimensional travel of some kind, where it could vanish without necessarily having to find an open window or an open door or do it even in front of anybody. But then it's clearly not that bright because it just went right back to where it was. And the other thing that's interesting about where it was and what it was doing and the idea of it flying about a bat that we haven't really touched on is if you think about the images that are on the bottom of it, taking away the ashtray theory but of something sort of water, something, as we said, very voynichy, maybe mm-hmm. this thing's whole purpose is to recover biological samples. And that's what it was trying to do, or to study biological samples, even though it can't seem to handle water. And that begs a whole other question. It's how do you travel through deep space if water can kill you? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, hey, look, no, that's just a, let me finish. Th- sure. Okay, go ahead, please. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm, I'm gonna sorry. let you go. I, I sincerely apologize. I'm going to yes. let you go full tilt here. So uh, there's all of that stuff because then there was another part of me, and this is something that I've talked about before. No, I'm not going to the hollow earth, the middle earth thing. But what I am saying <laughs> is, because I love USOs, unidentified submerged objects. I'm a big fan of them. The Tic Tac supposedly was uh, partnered with some other craft that was below the water that the, the Nimitz pilots saw. I love that idea and that story, but my question is, could this thing have been deployed by something that was terrestrial? And that's why it was made of this technology, but it was still super advanced, and maybe it came from a very advanced intelligence, and that's why I'm going with Doc Brown. That's my theory. I think Doc Brown made it. And I think I just, he sent it over there to recover yeah. samples. No, but what if it is some crazy inventor? You know, what if that is what it was? And it was way ahead lost item. Yeah. yeah, who is uh, a genius but mal-socialized and doesn't care anything about <laughs> making money or telling anyone right, what he's made. Right. I don't know something right. like that. I don't think it's a deep space object. I don't think it's interdimensional. I do think hmm. there's a fair chance that it was real and that it flew. I think the ashtray part of it is just something that was extrapolated or adapted from the story being told later and it being compared to this uh, prop that was in the documentary that looked like the ashtray. It seems to me like that's a possibility for a description. And if it's a hoax, yes, it's an ashtray. And we've just done four hours on an ashtray. (laughs) But if it's not, (laughs) I'm sure we've done more on less before. But that's where I'm at. Forrest, what are your final thoughts on this? Well, let's back up here. Hold on a second Uh here. What you're saying out of all that is that you do believe that it was not a hoax. I'm on the fence about the hoax part of it. I'm going to go 60-40, leaning away from a hoax. Yeah, Uh, But the 60 part doesn't think it's interstellar or interdimensional. How did it
0: disappear then, if you believe at least big chunks of that narrative? You know what I'm saying? That's not a small incident, that the fact that it disappeared several times and reappeared mysteriously is a big part
2: of the collective narrative. I don't know. You know, I've got uh, an 11-year-old, and he's a pretty smart kid, <laughs> but I can make like, things disappear yeah. right in the room when he's there super easy, at least for right now, when he gets older. Oh, because...
0: you're saying it was a uh, the disappearing part was possibly the prank.
2: No, I'm saying that uh, kids of that age aren't as attentive as yes. we are as oh, adults. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, I got that. This thing snuck away without them noticing,
2: essentially. I think that's a possibility, yeah.
0: But not uh, disappearing interdimensionally as a mechanism for its disappearance is what are no, saying. I don't think okay. that's happened. It just, it flew off and they weren't paying attention,
2: but how yes. did it get
0: out of the bag with the, with the tie on it? That's another huge part of the narrative there is that the, the very final appearance, it's somehow, got out of a bag which it did not untie. So the little silver man and the three inch tall uh homunculus wearing the silver suit didn't yeah, get out and untie yeah, the bag.
2: I know. I guess that's
0: well I mean again we're we're, I don't know. <laughs> we're I don't picking know. apart I don't the, have all the, the answers today. <laughs> we're picking apart the imaginary <laughs> sweater, which does not exist. Yeah. I agree with a lot of what you're saying as as far as a possibility, but I I think it's fascinating that uh you're going with a more Nuts and bolts, grounded, Doc Brown. At first, I thought it was the soda you were talking about the delicious
2: soda
1: you get
0: at, uh, at, uh, at delis.
2: Dr. Emmett Brown, back to the future. I should have been more specific. Okay, so
0: there's possibly, a. let me ask you this, a real world or an earthly creator of this thing? Yep, and it lives in a cave in Kentucky. <laughs> is, it a, is it an extraterrestrial creation, but more, uh, not dimensional, but from somewhere else, let's say, that is beyond our knowledge?
2: I don't know. I I can't tell you where I think it came from. I just don't think it was interstellar yeah. or interdimensional. Okay. All right. I'll buy that. While but I think if it was real, and <laughs> yeah. I lean towards it being real, but only just barely, that it was terrestrial in origin and clearly incapable of being submerged in water, at least in the state that they found it in. So it would have to have been... Created locally, for lack of a better idea. <laughs> right. Well, I, mean, I don't know what kind of fuel it ran on, but...
0: Yeah, we don't know the, the inner workings here, but uh, what John had uh, mentioned, I think we did too, an uh, hour ago, is that there were foundries in the area. It could have been a mold itself or something that was made from a, an ashtray mold or a,
2: another part. It's some <laughs> genius guy who worked in one of the foundries... Moonlighting at night and turning an ashtray yeah. into a flying craft of some kind that gathers bugs. yeah The,
0: the only thing that bothers me is the uh, one of my least favorite and uh, despised explanations for the bet sphere is that somehow it got away from uh, it's a ball valve, a giant one, and somehow oh, got yeah, away from right. a factory and ended up in Jacksonville in a yeah, uh, in a remote ridiculous. section of woods. But, okay, then let's see it. And so in the case of the Sphere, yeah, let's see that ball valve that's exactly the same. Everybody's saying that, and nobody provided one. Here, you can see an ashtray that is very closely identical, very similar to what was described from a recreation, which was your earlier point. Right. Yeah.
2: Identical to a prop. I, exactly. Right. Identical the to prop a prop. The prop was probably made from an ashtray. Right. So... There is some written description of what they saw if you move away from the fact that there's no image of what they initially captured. Right. Then you have to compare the description of what they said to a blank slate in your mind rather than comparing it to the ashtray because the ashtray or the thing that they built for the documentary was a prop. Yeah. And I'm sure that the the art director or whoever built that thing built it based on some conversations with one of the boys or whatever, and then showed it to him. And they're like, yeah, it was like that. They didn't say, not exactly. This was, I I don't know. I I just don't envision this big complex conversation because it's, we're doing a reenactment. Is this sort of what it was like? Yeah. Okay. This is our prop. And then bam, you find these other things that look like the prop. Congratulations. You've compared two things that we both know are from earth and they Mm -hmm. look alike. Mm -hmm. So that's just what I was thinking
0: there. Okay, one last question for you then, as far as water goes. Well, that's described by the boys in their simplistic idea of what affects this thing or its kryptonite. I think going along your line of thinking, if it's some kind of sensor... Then, yeah, I, I don't think water should be a problem for this thing, holes or not, or electronics or not. Even back then, people were starting to make water-resistant items that were electronic. It took a while to create that kind of line, you know. Before you saw a waterproof Walkman, so yeah,
2: that was the yellow one, the sports, the sports, exactly.
0: So yeah, so in this case, oh, which is
2: not waterproof, I think it was water-resistant.
0: Yeah, exactly, it was It's water-resistant because water gets into everything; it finds a way one final statement about your final statement about well where did this thing go why isn't it around i would say to that how many ufo or ufo related objects or otherworldly out of place objects stick around that were functioning at least partly because look at the beth sphere i do believe from the testimony of the family that this thing did what it did from Listening to them, and from all I've read and we've we've researched, I believe that it did weird things that it should not have done.
2: I just talked to our friend from that family two days yeah. ago.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to hear what she's got to say, uh, any new updates. But my point about the bet's Sphere is that uh, it is kind of a philosophical Murphy's Law of UFO anomalous objects, and that the only ones that we have around or are, are allowed to keep Perhaps are the ones that are broken. And after it did all its miraculous things, why do they still have it in some philosophical way? Because it did not do what it used to do. After they got it back from the navy, purportedly or the the blue ribbon panel, it didn't seem to work anymore. I think it maybe did a few strange things, but really, it's kind of inert. Maybe they broke it. Maybe they stole the goop out of the uh, the inside of it, which was the same as the Kira object, whatever it was. It did not function anymore because I believe anomalous objects uh, follow along this old French saying, it is the fate of glass to break. And what I mean by that is that anything that's really out of this world, we're just not allowed to keep. Because if you could keep this thing, now it's in a museum, and it zigzags around, and you can peek inside, and there's a little guy in there, and he never ages. You just have to feed him some stuff occasionally. It's like, we can't have that, (laughs) that just turns our whole existence and our our, our raison d'etre upside down. So again, it's like UFOs. They always go away. There are apparently some pieces now that uh, Bigelow is claiming that he has, and it's it's the metal, but other than a whole functioning craft that's held by some government somewhere, the regular population is, we're just not allowed to own these things. So of course it's gone. So I don't question that. Well, now, getting to what I think about this, I, I've kind of laid out as we went along my major thoughts about this. But So I will say along your lines, yeah, I, I tend to believe 60% that something strange did happen. It, it was a real encounter. And a lot of that is because the involvement of the adults, would I think would have to be involved in a hoax, because uh, the, one, the one father who has scientific knowledge and skill looked at this thing and didn't immediately clock this as an ashtray, that he peeked inside and saw components that he thought looked like radio guts in it. So it had been observed by adults who then would have to be in on this. So if that was the case, these kids did a really good job of manufacturing this thing with the electronics inside that at least fooled one science teacher. On the other hand, I will say the hoax angle is it's the easiest, tidiest, most comfortable way to explain all this away, there you go, is just a hoax. Then we don't have to consider the possibility that there are weird objects flying around that shoot lights at us and make strange buzzing and popping noises and can't be explained by our current uh, technology or, or reasoning. So I think in the Kira object case, the hoax angle is an easier and perhaps more likely fit, more adjusting to the type of story it is rather than something like the Patterson-Gimlin film, which to me, from all that we've researched and, and all we've heard personally from Bob Gimlin, it just doesn't fit as easily as being a hoax, if that makes sense. Or something like the Phoenix Lights. Thousands of people in Phoenix saw this thing, and it's like, well, it was weather balloons tied together, like, okay, that does not work for me at all. <laughs> or even like Mothman. The fact that so many people saw this, that it was all just made up by a bunch of necking teenagers one night who pretended to be scared and the sheriff believed them. It doesn't fit into the hoax as easily as this story does, because it's easy to just say, yeah, it was a hoax and some adults were fooled. So in the spirit of this story that starts off with a bunch of boys finding something just otherworldly, really exciting. And it goes on to define their youth and their adulthood for good or bad. Maybe not the way that they thought it would if it was a hoax and they thought they'd gain a little notoriety from this, or if they had no control over it because it really happened. Either way, for a short period of time, they held in their possession something wondrous, something miraculous, something that they were probably not meant to own. But in the spirit of youthful adventurism, and I believe adults and kids alike, at some point in your life, you should experience something just miraculous, something wondrous, because that's what makes life exciting. So I hope that just one day, adult or child, somewhere, sometime, find something that we get to keep.
2: That's going to wrap up our series on the Kira Object. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep
0: the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. This is Missy, M-I-S-S-Y. Here it goes. Hi, we are Christy and Casey. Galaxy wide wide in perpetuity. perpetuity For future compensation. No implied promise of K-S-E-Y. K-A-S-E-Y. M-I-S-S-Y.
2: The story producer for tonight's show was Micah Hanks. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our
0: theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com
2: or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.